0: You're muted. As I said, still not a expert in the <laughs> everything.
1: Uh, clearly, all right. We'll now call uh, this regular meeting of the Juvenile Probation Commission to order. Today is Wednesday, October thirteenth, the time twenty twenty one. The time is five forty one p.m. Uh, Madam Secretary, can you please call the roll?
0: President Joseph Ariano present. Vice President Catherine Chu. Present. Commissioner Margaret Brodkin. We see you, but you're muted. She might have lost internet connection. She is present. Commissioner Toya Moses is excused. Commissioner Andrea Shorter. Present and commissioner james Spingola, president president you
2: have a quorum
1: thank you now we'll go ahead and move to item number two public comment. uh and i'll just before we go ahead to item number two i'll just note that um we have some housekeeping uh in order that we have to take uh housekeeping issues that we have to take out of order so we'll be taking item number four about teleconference meetings uh 1st, before we do the uh, full commission meeting minutes, um, but um, if it's okay uh, with our city attorney, should we go ahead and do public comment? Is that all right?
3: It might be better to start with the.
1: the oh, okay. Okay. So, why don't we just um, before we go ahead to move on to item number 2, um, I'll just. Uh, reorder the agenda here and we're going to take item number four first, uh, since it is involving our teleconference meetings and some housekeeping we have to do. Um, so. Um, this is findings to allow teleconference meetings under California government code section 54953 E uh, it's a discussion and possible action item. This is an agenda item that we have to hear. Uh, right now, so that we can go ahead and proceed with our teleconference meeting. Um, the state has extended. Its rules, allowing bodies to uh, meet remotely provided they uh, make certain findings that it's still necessary to meet remotely due to the. Ongoing emergency. Specifically, uh, the body must find that one, it has considered or reconsidered the circumstances of the state of emergency, and two, a, the state of emergency continues to directly impact the ability of policy body members to meet safely in person, and two, b, state or local officials continue to impose or recommend measures to promote social distancing. Uh, Our city attorney has uh, prepared a resolution for us in response to a, B, 361, which I believe addressed this matter. Um, So, at this time, I believe uh, we have to make a motion to continue or excuse me to adopt this. uh, Language, and then that will
0: allow us to continue our remote meeting. Is that correct? uh, City attorney so. Again, you could either read it or make sure it's available through the WebEx. And again, I don't know
3: how to do that. Um, so if people want to see it. And you need to, of course, have public comment before you
4: vote.
1: Sure, sure. Um, so at this time, could our Madam Secretary please, um, just for the public who are tuning in, uh, could we please
0: have that resolution shared? Hey, I'm working on it. Just give me one second, please. Sure. Oh, I think we might have lost it. There we go. So, um,
1: I'll just go ahead and read it. um, Quickly here, so bear with me. Uh, Resolution making findings to allow teleconference meetings under California government code section 54953 E. Whereas California government code section 54953 e empowers local policy bodies to convene by teleconferencing technology during a proclaimed state of emergency under the state emergency services act so long as certain conditions are met. And whereas in March, 2020, the governor of the state of California proclaimed a state of emergency in California in connection with the coronavirus disease 2019 COVID-19 pandemic and that state of emergency remains in effect. And whereas. In February, uh, 25th, uh, 2020, the mayor and the city of the city and county of San Francisco declared a local emergency and on March 6, 2020, the city's health officer declared a local health emergency and both those declarations also remain in effect. And whereas on March 11th and March 23rd, 2020, the mayor issued emergency orders suspending select provisions of local law. Including sections of the city charter that restrict teleconferencing by members of policy bodies. Those orders remain in effect. So city law currently allows policy bodies to meet remotely if they comply with restrictions in state law regarding teleconference meetings and whereas on September 16, 2021 the governor signed AB 361 a bill that amends the Brown Act to allow local policy bodies to continue to meet by teleconferencing during a state of emergency without complying with restrictions in state law that would otherwise apply provided that the policy bodies make certain findings at least once every 30 days and Whereas, while federal, state, and local health officials emphasize the critical importance of vaccination and consistent mask wearing to prevent the spread of COVID-19, the city's health officer has issued at least one health, at least one order. Health officer order number C19-07Y, available online at slash health orders and one directive, health officer directive number 2020-33I, available online uh, at www sfdph.org directives that continue to recommend measures to promote physical distancing and other social distancing measures such as masking in certain contexts and oh well, there's more <laughs> and whereas the California Department of Industrial Relations Division of Occupational Safety and Health Cal/OSHA has promulgated section 3205 of title eight of the California Code of Regulations which requires most employers in California Including in the city to train and instruct employees about measures that can decrease the spread of covid 19, including physical distancing and other social distancing measures and whereas without limiting any requirements under applicable federal state or local pandemic related rules orders or directives. The city's Department of public health in coordination with the city's health officer has advised that for group gatherings, indoors, such as meetings of boards and commissions. People can increase safety and greatly reduce risks to the health and safety of attendees from COVID-19 by maximizing ventilation, wearing well-fitting masks as required by health officer order number C19-07, using physical distancing where the vaccination status of attendees is not known, and considering holding the meeting remotely if feasible, especially for long meetings with any attendees with unknown vaccination status and where ventilation may not be optimal, and Whereas on July 31st, 2020, the mayor issued an emergency order that, with limited exceptions, prohibited policy bodies other than the Board of Supervisors and its committees from meeting in person under any circumstances so as to ensure the safety of policy body members, city staff, and the public. And whereas the commission has met remotely during the COVID 19 pandemic and can continue to do so in a manner that allows public participation and transparency while minimizing health risks to members, staff, and the public. That would be present with in person meetings while this emergency continues. Now, therefore, it be resolved, Therefore, be it resolved that the, our, uh, that the juvenile probation commission finds as follows. And this is the part that we will have to uh, have public comment on and vote. If there's a motion. Uh, number 1, as described above the state of California and the city remain in a state of emergency due to the covid 19 pandemic at this meeting, the juvenile probation commission has considered the circumstances of the state of emergency. 2, as described above state and city officials continue to recommend measures to promote physical distancing and other social distancing measures in some settings. 3, as described above, because of the covid 19 pandemic, conducting meetings of this body and its committees in person would present imminent risks to the safety of attendees and the state of emergency continues to directly impact the ability of members to meet safely in person and be it further resolved that for at least the next 30 days. Meetings of the juvenile probation and its committees will continue to occur exclusively by teleconferencing technology and not by any in person meetings or any other meetings with public access to the places where any policy body member is present for the meeting. Such meetings of the juvenile probation commission and its committees that occur by teleconferencing technology will provide an opportunity for members of the public to address this body and its committees. And will otherwise occur in a manner that protects the statutory and constitutional rights of parties and the members of the public attending the meeting via teleconferencing and be it further resolved that the secretary of the juvenile probation commission is directed to place. A resolution substantially similar to this resolution on the agenda of a future meeting of the juvenile probation commission within the next 30 days. If the juvenile probation commission does not meet within the next 30 days, the secretary is directed to place a resolution on the agenda. Of the next meeting of the juvenile probation commission. So, I know that was a mouthful, um, but um, for thanks for uh, the public and members of the commission and uh, attendees tonight for bearing with us for the next meeting. We'll obviously post this in advance of our 72 hour meeting requirements. So we won't have to read through it, but uh, thought that it would be uh, prudent to do re- to read it out aloud for members. Understand why we are voting on this action item uh, if there is a motion. So, at this time, is there a motion to adopt the resolution as drafted
0: and presented uh, to allow our teleconference meetings to continue? I move to adopt. Do I have a second?
5: Second.
1: Thank you. Uh, at this time, is there public comment on this motion to approve this resolution?
5: Uh, no, I don't see anyone in the queue.
1: All right, Can we have a roll call vote at this time on this resolution.
2: President Ariano, Aye. Vice President Chu. Aye. Commissioner Brodkin.
0: Aye, uh, and I wanna know if you can hear me. We, we can. can. Commissioner Shorter. Aye. And Commissioner Spangola. Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. Thank you to the members of the
1: public and our attendees tonight for bearing with us. And now we'll go and take uh, item number two, which we um, have not taken prior uh, public comment. This is general public comment uh, for matters that the public would like to uh, address before the commission. At this time, I'll just hand it over to our secretary and
0: moderator and see if there's any public comment and hands raised.
5: No, I don't see anyone in the queue for public comment.
1: And is this I just since I did uh, not attend the last meeting, are we still doing star 3 for hand raising? That's correct. I'll just note to members of the public to press star three at this time one more time if they'd like to uh speak during general public
0: comment. Do we have any hands raised? Nope. All right. No. And then,
1: uh, Madam Secretary, do you have any emails or voicemails?
2: Not at this time.
1: Thank you. So now we'll go ahead and close. General public comment and take item number 3 review and approval of the full commission
0: meeting minutes of September 8th, 2021. Do I have a motion? To approve those minutes,
6: I move to approve.
0: Thank you. Is there any public comment at this time?
5: Nope. There's no one in the queue.
0: Madam Secretary, can we please have a roll call vote on this motion? President Ariano. Aye. Vice President Chu? Aye. Commissioner Broadkin? Aye. Commissioner Shorter? Aye. Commissioner Spangola? Aye. Motion passes. Thank you.
1: And we will now move to item number five. This is an item
0: uh, at the request of Commissioner Broadkin about a juvenile probation commission retreat. Yes, I think we put this on this
7: you. time because in case we wanted to um, make a decision uh, I. Uh, we had discussed briefly at the last meeting that we have a retreat and that we have a treat a retreat as soon as we can meet in person and the purpose of the retreat would be to uh, discuss how the commission. Uh, is functioning how to make it as effective as possible and how to look at the overall goals for the year for the department and for the commission. So, um, I presume it's on the agenda again in order to, uh, have a motion to, uh, plan a retreat, um, and have it happen as soon as we can, uh. Um, I'm happy to make that motion. (laughs) Uh, if. if people so wish, or, uh, people want to discuss this further. Um, let me know how to proceed.
0: Sure, Um,
1: I mean, personally, we've done them in the past and I think they're quite helpful. Um. I guess my only question would be more to the deputy city attorney and whether since we just. Uh, Voted on this item regarding teleconference meetings and our commission if. That would also apply to a future retreat if we were to do it since I would presume that all members of the commission would most likely attend and. If that affects any of uh, our ability to meet as in a retreat form.
3: Um, Are you saying could you meet remotely? Is I'm sorry? Could you meet in person? Is that what you're asking?
1: In person, or would we have to do it remotely or just exactly what kind um, of parameters we have to adhere yeah. to since it would be the full commission meeting and I would assume it would have to be publicly noticed and so forth.
3: Right, it would be a meeting um, if, so you're correct. it would have to be noticed. The public would have to be able to attend um, and observe um, and you, you could, I believe you could not do it. Until at least January 1st, because you're not, I mean, you couldn't do it in person until January 1st, but before January 1st, you could do it remotely. Um, yeah, but so all the same rules that apply to your meetings would apply to the retreat. The last time you guys did it, I think you did it in the city in city hall in a large room um, and it was a notice meeting. I don't think anyone from the public did come and observe, but.
7: You know, they, they need to have that option. Understood. No, I don't see a lot of point and I mean, I think it would be so much harder to do it remotely. Um, so I would strongly recommend that we wait until we can do it in person, but that we. Make a decision as a commission to do it, um. You know, as soon as we can, after, as soon as we can plan it effectively after, um, we can meet in person.
1: I agree with that. I think I think that I agree wholeheartedly that. It would be technologically I mean, I'm sure we can make it work, but I think, you know, we've all seen the limits of meeting by teleconference and if we were able to um, obviously meet in a city hall meeting room uh, together and notice it and. Um, do that safely uh, after the first of the year when we're allowed to presumably do so, then um, I, I think that makes the most sense. Um, and I would be in favor of uh, moving forward with uh, planning for something uh, for 2022.
0: Um, I don't know how other commissioners feel about it.
5: Hey, I am. Um... I second that because um, trying to do a telecommunity, it's just virtual or just not working. You know, we, you spend your whole day now virtually and it just, I mean, you you get mentally just drained out virtually. So, I don't think trying to do a retreat virtually is a retreat. So, let's just, it's not, that's not a retreat. So, um, have it in person. I think we just hold off and, you know, come January, see what the outcome is. I don't, you know, we pray that we don't get a surge in the process of everything else going on, Um, and we, you know, we play it by ear. On come January, we, you know, kind of plan for a retreat in City Hall somewhere, one of the big rooms.
0: <clears throat> Commissioner Chu, or would you, do you have any thoughts? I, I agree that it's usually
6: better and uh, more engaging to have a retreat in person. I do wonder about the timing, though. Um, it seems like the or the sooner that we could have it, the better. It'd be nice to have something that we could kick off to start implementing in January of next year, but it sounds like we couldn't have an in-person until January of next year. So then my next question would be, would it be, would it make sense to pick a date now, essentially on the record or should we wait and see what's,
0: What the emergency protocol situations are in January. It's a good question. I know everyone's schedules are probably going to be filling up as well. So better to.
1: Plan it sooner rather than later, Um, I'll open it up to uh, Commissioner shorter. Do you have any thoughts on this as well?
8: Yeah, it would appear to me that, um, we, we were just not able to convene in person until after January as the city attorney, uh, noted. And, um, so I don't see any other way to schedule. Um, an in person retreat until after. January to even start discussing it. Um, now, so that's the logistical part of things, but, um. I certainly would hope that, um. In the, um, you know, when we are able to convene in person and 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 retreat. Um, I, I need a little more information, uh, in terms of what we are retreating about. Um, and I heard, I, I kind of heard what what Commissioner Brocken said, but she kind of came in and out. So I didn't really get the the content. So if. You know, maybe she can describe again. What are we retreating about? I am not a fan of retreating and discussing um, what the role of of commissions are or commissioners. If you are serving on a commission at this point, um, having an open meeting and determining and deciding and and defining what that is, I don't think is always the best use of of. Of time, but if we're looking at the. you know, on on, um, we have some big items. We're still. Determining, um, what the future of juvenile hall will be. I am more interested in retreating or having in, you know. A meeting that is really focused on something very specific. Um, and what our plans will be for something like that. A general meeting on, you know, what our role is and what we're, so I'm, I'm not, I'm just being very direct having participated in some of those types of retreats i don't really find them to be that that effective but i think that it's more effective if we're focused on two or three different areas in terms of of um what um how to how to um, be effective policy or um planning areas does that make sense i feel like a
0: <laughs>
8: Not Absolutely.
0: That. Yeah, I I'm yeah, just going
8: I to spend the day talking about what we're supposed to be doing as commissioners.
1: Right. And I and I think in previous years when we've had these types of retreats they were um around the time that we had been uh, onboarding some new commissioners and there was this question of well what is the role of a commissioner and how can we um you know learn obviously the procedures and rules and laws in place. Um, that the department and the commission deal with, and how we can obviously work through the commissions channels to affect those. But I agree. I think that at this point, we are are, I think of the 6 of us who are uh, on the commission, I, I think are. Pretty up to speed on all of that side of the house. And so, really, I think to perhaps I'll obviously hand it over to Commissioner Broadkin. it seems as though the discussion would be centered more around annual goals for the commission. Uh, I think that's generally what I've heard. Is that accurate commissioner?
7: Yeah, I agree with what, um, uh, commissioner shorter is saying, I'm not interested in, uh, uh, you know, some general thing or in everybody's psychosocial whatever, which some retreats devolve into. No, I think that what we need to do is talk about what, our prior, what the priorities of the department are, what our priorities are, and how we can maybe organize ourselves. Maybe we need a different committee to, in order to really um, delve into the uh, substance of what we're, we're responsible for. I also also put on the um and I think these two things are related
0: that there would be goals for the
7: department and that we would work with our chief, I'm sure has goals for the department, but that we work together and made this um, a part of the substance of the retreat or even all of the substance of the retreat about what are the goals of the department for the year and what's everybody's seeing that we achieve uh, those goals and what's our role as an oversight body (laughs) to measure and um, make sure that the department is meeting, is meeting its goals. So that's, that's what I'm interested in talking about. Can I
3: interrupt for 1 second Uh better
7: to community based organizations? How, how, um. Uh, you know how are we going to make sure that young people have appropriate placements when they need to be placed? Um, uh, not that we're going to answer all those issues, but we at all can't do that in a retreat. But we can say these are the six or ten things that we think are the most important issues that we're going to be addressing in the coming year, and hopefully, um, we would this very much collaboration with the to ask her to come to uh, the retreat with, you know, sort of her goals for the year and we can figure out how we function as a body to um, either amend those or something we can
0: start coming in and out. I just wanted to add 1 thing. I, my best prediction is
3: that you will not that consistent with the health orders. You won't be able to meet until January 1 in person, but that's not actually the rule right now. That's what I know is what's in place right now. And the, and the best predictions are that. It's going to continue till January 1. I just didn't want to be. I, I think I may have misspoken and suggested that that was, in fact, the rule right now. The current rule is you can't meet um, in person. I expect that to continue until January 1st, but I can't say that for sure. It's possible. It gets lifted sooner than that. Anyway, I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt. You were having a great conversation. I just didn't want you to have the conversation much longer without based on that misunderstanding or based on my misspeaking. So sorry about that.
1: No, I appreciate that Uh, and it's good to know just exactly what uh, rules and governing our, our meeting in person are so that we can obviously plan. Uh, accordingly, um, it sounds like we're all somewhat in agreement. Uh, I think. Commissioner Chu, I'm hearing that we should obviously try to. Nail down a date um, sooner rather than later, because I think if we obviously wait until, you know, the 1st, January meeting, then most likely the meeting will happen in March, for instance. Right? And so then at that point, we're pushing it out even further. So, um, perhaps. Um, instead of, uh, I think, I don't think we have to vote. To agree to have a meeting, but perhaps we can agree to. Uh, toss out some dates for perhaps mid to late January where um, commissioners are available and we can start uh, VR commission secretary to. Um, just arrange people's availability for a potential January retreat and uh, plan for. Uh, something of the of that nature and if, for instance, the health orders lifted sooner or on Jan 1, then we can, um, you know, go ahead and proceed with that. And, um, I would, I would think maybe late January makes sense so that we can get agendas and um, other materials in order and have 3 to 4 weeks to do. So, um, but maybe it's more right now about arranging people's calendars and just getting on the same page about when people are free and the time commitments and a location. Uh and then we can um you know obviously fill in the rest of the agenda um closer
0: to the date. Does that make sense for everyone? This commissioner Shorter. I wanted to we have enough
7: sorry. Go I ahead, just wanted to make sure we do have enough time to plan it, um, because um The holidays are coming up you know and i want to have a really good well-planned organized retreat i want to give our chief the time she would need to prepare for it so i'm thinking february maybe even the you know maybe even early march i i just if we get it on the calendar and we plan it and we start preparing for it then i think we can have a really effective retreat so i i i think um commissioner chu had the idea we do it right away i just present another possibility cuz nothing's worse than a terrible retreat <laughs> <laughs>
1: um and i and you bring bring up a good point about the holidays i i forgot forgot to mention you know we obviously have uh two major holidays and the new year and all that and so um usually uh if History has proven any guide there's very little planning that will take place around that time. So, um, I think that's a very good point commissioner. So, perhaps we can aim for uh, mid February uh, to early March. If that makes sense and uh, give ample opportunity and time for the department as well as uh, ourselves as a commission to get on the same page and plan out the agenda and get the uh, materials in order. Does that make sense?
8: This is commissioner shorter. I, that makes perfect sense to me. I I also think that, um, and I don't know what Commissioner Brockens, if you you have any particular thought about this. um, I think it's also helpful um, to, um, you know, in, in retreat. And given this, you know, what we are the scope of what we want to um, discuss that it's also in time, if there's anything. That would affect, I don't know what it would be, but um, that would affect um, the next next budget cycle. Um, or have the, 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 possibility of doing that, not that we're deciding anything in the retreat that says, hey, um, this is a definitive. Um, you know, uh, action item, um, uh, you know, on, on the budget, but, um, I'm just throwing that out there. Um, so that it's also strategic, um, in that regard, that's just a general. Very, very, very general, very broad. Um, advisement, um, you know, nothing hard fast about it. But clearly the longer that, um. You know, hopefully we will be able to meet in February and at latest, I would think March. Um, so, but. Anything beyond that, I mean, you know, we're getting closer to, um, right? Is that correct? Am I incorrect in terms of the um budget period, or maybe I'm,
1: um, I mean, I would say that the budget, uh, commissioner, I mean, the say. budget discussions are usually held at the finance committee, um, right. so perhaps, um, things regarding the budget, um, I don't recall, uh, so we've had so many moving. Pieces at this point, I'm not sure who's on the finance committee with me still, but um,
8: perhaps You, I think it's just you and me.
1: (laughs) Okay. So, there you go. So, so maybe that's where that uh, budget discussion could be had um, with maybe a a sprinkling of budget discussion uh, as it it relates to, like, the annual goals. uh, If, you know, for the retreat, but um, that's, that's the only thing I'd say is that I think we usually have the meat uh, of those discussions uh at the finance committee. So um
8: All Right. Just as long as it's in a, it's in some alignment. In other words, just I'm just again just a general, very broad
0: um you know advice but Sure. Well then why don't we go ahead um
1: let's I think Uh, we can move forward with the agreement that we, as a commission are all in agreement to have a retreat. Have it in mid February to early March. We'll uh, start the process by, uh. Providing our secretary with our availability so that everyone is is putting out their uh, available dates that they're uh, in weeks or days and so forth available. We can at work. uh, I'll work with our commissioner. Uh, excuse me, our secretary to find a location potentially. Um, obviously, assuming that the health order is lifted and we can resume meeting in person uh, in the new year. And then from there, um, perhaps Commissioner Brodkin, you can start to work with both the chief as well as uh, reaching out um, to the other commissioners. Um, you know, obviously adhering to the Brown Act, but just making sure that we're having those conversations
0: about potential agenda items and structure. To this, does that make sense? Yes.
7: I I wonder if perhaps until yes, I'd like until to do we... that. I'm happy to do it, and so um, within the constraints of the Brown Act, <laughs> communicate with about
0: uh, authorities. Right.
7: Structure. And retreat with her to sort of make sure we make use of our time.
1: Commissioner Chu, did you have a point you wanted to make?
6: Thank you. I, I wonder if, um, in the spirit of transparency and public disclosure, if we should have perhaps a running agenda item until we have the retreat on potential agenda topics. Um, For the retreat, that way we can make sure that if we want to have a lively discussion on what we'll be retreating about. That it happens with the members of the public being available and because I just, I just think if we try to do. Emails just through Madam Secretary, that it it just it'll be. Ineffective and perhaps messy, Um, so I think discussion even on agenda items would be helpful. So perhaps having it. Be on the next few. General meetings would be helpful.
3: I think that would be better too. This is Jana um, just so that you don't. Inadvertently have end up with a seriatim meeting. It also might be good. I just you put it on the agenda as an action item I and mean, it sounds like you're in agreement about um, having a retreat. I don't think it would hurt. I think it would probably help just to, to vote on it. Um, I don't think you have to, because it's a special meeting as long as you give 15 days notice. I think it is. I think you'd be okay. But again. In the spirit of what the vice president just said, probably be a good idea to vote on it.
1: And then I guess another. Isn't uh, it an action ready? Oh, sorry, it, it's a discussion and or, uh, discussion and action item. I believe. Um, another thought is in the past, I think we've set up. Uh, you know, time limited subcommittees uh, to address certain things. Is that something uh, to our question to the deputy city attorney that would make sense here where we establish a a, a subcommittee to essentially be the retreat subcommittee where we can meet uh, regularly and uh, address these. uh, Agenda items and discussions uh, transparently.
3: Yeah, that that would work. I mean, it'd be a brown act meeting, but yeah, that would work. It might be easier than getting everyone together.
1: Right. So then, maybe does that make sense for the commissioners to set up a subcommittee, a retreat subcommittee um, tonight that would essentially meet regularly between now and uh, February to uh, perhaps, let's say, I don't know, twice a month or or once a month, whatever works with everyone uh, to to go ahead and plan what this would look like from agenda perspective
0: and um, you know the structure, the location, and so forth. Any thoughts, that sounds good.
6: I I wonder if perhaps meeting twice a week. I'm sorry, twice a month uh, and I'm assuming commissioner Brodkin Would want to be on this committee that might just be a lot of work in addition to.
0: The program committee and our general meetings. Perhaps twice a month is not the right cadence, but, um. I I agree, there's a lot of work and uh,
1: other task forces and working groups and so forth that are meeting as well. So, um, I don't know, Commissioner Brodkin, do you have thoughts on maybe a once a month meeting cadence for
0: a subcommittee for the retreat? Does that sound uh, okay to you? We lose Commissioner Brodkin. Yeah, it looks like we lost her. Um, I think we just move on to the
5: next item. And come back to it.
1: So, it sounds then um, since obviously this is uh, an item from commissioner Brodkin, um that was brought forth. Why don't we go ahead and and per the deputy city attorney and a great suggestion from commissioner Chu, vote to move forward with the retreat. Uh, pending the removal of the health orders around a. February, mid February to early March timeframe, and then. uh, You know, uh, the initial stages of this planning could take place uh, now by Commissioner Brodkin, and then perhaps at the next meeting, we can vote to establish a subcommittee to meet as necessary uh, with the understanding that obviously we still can't meet in person, but hopefully in 2022, we will be able to. Does that make sense? So, I'll just go ahead and put that motion out there to uh, some motion to. Um, I'm sorry, it looks like we're getting a chat from commissioner Brodkin. She says. She cannot hear she's working on it and trying to find a good place to participate. So. Um, we'll just make a motion to, uh, move forward with a retreat in 2022, uh, in the 1st, quarter of the year and, uh, we will leave it at that and, um, take up the item at the next. Meeting, I will just leave it at that for now and that's the motion. Um, so is there any public comment. On a motion to have a retreat of
0: the juvenile probation commission in 2022 in the 1st quarter. Nope, no 1 in the queue yet.
1: Uh, at this time, madam secretary, can we please have a roll call vote of this motion? I'm so, sorry. I, I'm sorry. I guess I, I got ahead of myself. Is there a second to this motion? I will 2nd. Thank you. Uh, and we'll note that I already took public comments on the motion. Uh,
0: is there, uh, can we have a roll call vote on the motion? President Ariano. Aye. Vice president Two. Commissioner Brodkin. I think she's having technical difficulties. Yes. Yes. Oh, Can you name. hear me?
7: Yes.
2: Yes.
0: Okay. Commissioner Shorter. Yes. And Commissioner Spingola. Aye. Motion passes. Thank you.
1: Uh now we'll take uh item number six. I believe this was another uh item from Commissioner Brodkin about JPD's annual goals.
7: I actually can hear you now. I think the 2 issues are related and my hope was that the discussion of having goals um, and um, articulating goals would happen at the retreat. So I see them as totally related.
1: I think we're all in agreement that that would be the case um, that it would be a retreat around the goals um, and perhaps with. Per um, Commissioner Shorter, a, a discussion about the budgetary impacts, if that uh, is germane as well. So, if that's the case, perhaps we can take public comment and move on to the next item. Is that okay, Commissioner?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Thank you. Uh, so, now we'll just take public comment on item uh, number six uh, about JPD's annual goals. Um, the understanding that this is tied to number uh, agenda item 5, and, and that um, we are in agreement that the annual goals will be. Discussed at the retreat that will take place, hopefully in 2022
0: in the 1st quarter. Is there any public comment at this time on item? 6. No, nope, no 1 in the
5: queue for public comment.
0: Thank you. And
1: now we will move to item 7, the chief's report. Chief Miller. Thank you for bearing with us and we'll hand it over to you.
9: Good evening, everybody.
10: Um, Polly, may I have the ball thing? <laughs> the icon, the icon Thanks, control. All right. Thank you. Um, let's see.
9: Can folks see my screen?
0: We can.
10: Great. Let me start the slideshow. Wait, that's not how I want to do it. I don't like when we do it that way. Hold on one second. Hold on. Let's see if we can do it the better way.
5: Uh, Chief, you can try to start the slideshow. I can, I can do that. Just there start we, from from beginning. We can I don't want to do that. Go to it, the top, go to the top in the display settings, switch the display. Uh, this mod, uh, yeah, switch. Yes, there you go.
10: Thank you. I have never had that happen before. Thank you so much, Stephen. Steven saves the day. As always in these meetings. Um so good evening, everybody. I will um as as we've been doing as our practice, I will just be highlighting a handful of our slides, of our many slides, um, including some new ones and then one where we've made um, some new ones, I would say the ones that are kind of most key to us and then 1, where we've made, um, a data co- correction tonight. So, for those of you who are looking at hard copies, you may already have, uh, we're sending the corrected 1 to Pauline to post. So, you will have it. Um, I'm going to start by taking us to slide 3, which of course is our juvenile hall demographics. Um, as of yesterday. Um, so as of yesterday, we had you can see 16 young people in the hall, 14 boys and two girls. Our um, you can see our breakdown of race and ethnicity. Um, 62% of our young people were black, 19% Latinx, 13% AAPI, 6% other. I want to draw our attention to age. Um, 50% of the young people in the hall yesterday were 18 and up. Um, I will remind us all that when we were looking at these numbers in, like, January, February, it was about a third, Um, and now we are kind of trending up and up, and uh, the last couple of weeks had some time periods where more than half of the young people were actually older than 18. Um, And then lastly, I want to bring our attention to um, where we are in terms of commitment status, out of home placement and juvenile hall commitment status. So 56% of the young people detained right now um, have not had out of home placement orders previously. They're not um, supervised by our placement unit. Of the others, we have one young person pending placement, only one. Um, we have two pending disposition, so young people who already had been out ordered to out of home placement in the past, now pending disposition on new matters. Another two pending adjudication, again on new matters, kids who already had been ordered to placement. And then we have two young people with juvenile hall commitments. I draw our attention to this because again, um, this is you know a trend that we've been seeing throughout the year, actually reached a high point of three young people recently, now back down to two, want to flag it for you. I also wanna note as we're looking at who's in our hall today, I wanna give you a sense of kind of the detention reasons and we'll talk about obviously um, the detention reasons according to the DRI on a later slide. But just to explain, um, I wanted to note that of the young people in the hall, um, 38% are here on gun charges, 31 on homicide charges, and 31 on warrants. Of of the five young people who are here on warrants, um, in three of their underlying cases, those are also gun charges. So I want to add that in because I think it is uh, relevant to our discussion um, as we think about all the work that we're doing together. Going to take us now to slide four, only because for folks looking carefully from month to month, you may have a question about this. The demographics look different than they did last month, and I want to explain why. Um, we had one youth who, through last month's report, um, had been a different youth not reflected here who had been under DJJ post-release supervision that ended for him, so he's no longer reflected here. And then we had one young person who, through a data error, had never been put into this slide and that has now been corrected. So, even though we had a youth last month transition out of supervision, we had to add in the one who had not previously been counted. um, And that changed also our race and ethnicity um, and age. So I wanted to just note that for you. I'm going to take us next to slide 6, which is admissions releases and average daily population. Um, and just note that there were 13 admissions and 8 releases in September, uh, and the average daily population in August was 15 kids uh, and young adults. I will now take us to slide 12, um, the average length of stay, and we'll just spend a couple of minutes on two slides looking at this. Um, I know we talk about this a lot, kind of what this means and, um, you know, the different kinds of ways we look. but. Um, In August 2021, which is what this represents, the average length of stay for youth released was 21 days, which was higher than the 2020 average, which was 17 days. The average length of stay for youth in custody was 116 days, which was about 155 percent higher than last year. But as we've talked about a lot, part of the reason for that is that data gets skewed by one young person in particular who's been with us for a very, very long time, about two years. So, we have a new slide, um, which is slide 15, Uh, hard to look at and kind of understand. We're trying to do our best to find a way to convey this, but we've added in this new slide. Um, It breaks down the average length of stay for the young people in the hall by demographics, but it also includes both the mean and the median. So, for those of us who uh, did not like math class and can never keep these 2 terms straight, I'll just remind us that the mean is the average. Um, and averages can be very skewed as we've discussed by those outliers by a young person who's here for 2 years, right? The median is the middle value. So, when you look at the number of days that every young person's been here, you find the middle value and that's the median and it does a better job of not being skewed by that outlier number. So, we're trying to be responsive to this topic that we've been talking about in previous meetings. So, I just want to note that the median length of stay for girls was slightly shorter than boys for the kids who are released kind of in a given month, about the same for kids who stay month to month. The median length of stay was higher for Black youth, both released and in custody. So the median length of stay continues to be higher for our Black youth um, than for any of our other kids. I'm gonna take us now to slide 17, which is admissions by primary detention reason. And I wanna note that this is the corrected slide um, so, the version that you previously had for tonight had a couple of youth who were misidentified here. So, when you look at this new slide, you'll see that when you look at our August numbers, 92% uh, So, in August, there were 13 admissions to the hall. 92% were mandatory. Eight were for mandatory new law violations, uh, two were for warrants and court orders, and two were transfers in from other jurisdictions. And I just want to pause and note that because it is a reverse of some of the numbers we've seen in other months, where a lot higher percentage of the kids coming in were for wards and fewer ones were for new law violations. So, I want to note that for August um, 8% 1 youth was for a non mandatory detention. It was a case in which the DRI score, which was was over 11, which is a detention for us on that instrument. We'll be talking a lot more tonight about the DRI and what it means. Um, And that was a gun possession, a firearm possession case. So this is the corrected version and you will have it um, shared with you after this. It'll take us to slide 26, Um, average caseload by unit by average caseload size. This reflects both our pre-unit restructuring um, and then our post-unit restructuring. So as folks will remember for many months, we talked about the fact that our, private, our placement unit had very low caseloads um, and our reentry entry J.Crew unit had very high caseloads. And so we took the step of making some changes as we discussed last month. We now have combined placement and J.Crew, those two units together and separated out our AB12 kids um, into their own caseload. And so it's affected the number somewhat. You can see that right now our vertical units have an average of 17 and 14 cases per PO. Placement has gone from where it was previously 789, you can see the very low numbers, to 13 cases per PO. Our AB12 caseload is still quite high, 36 per social worker. Um, So I wanna just note that. And then our CART cases, which reflect three per PO, um, those are not dedicated caseloads. We, um, as of August, basically our CART cases are now a banked caseload that our on-duty POs do in addition to their on-duty duties. Just want to note for one quick second on the next slide, 27, that as of this time, 62% of our average caseload is 18 or older. So that number has been trending up and up and up, and it's 62. I'm now going to take us to slide 32, which is out of home placement details. Just to note, this, one, this slide actually goes through September, that as of the end of September, um, we had six young people in STRTPs, group homes, another six in resource families, RFAs, um, and uh, you know uh, those numbers continue to be low, but as you see, we now, we've had a trend of at least as many young people with resource families as we have mm-hmm. with group homes. We've had some young people coming out of those in the last month. And then finally, I am going to take us to our last slide, our slide 41, which is our deep dive slide Just to note that this month, we're going to be talking about the DRI, the detention risk instrument in November. Our plan is to do a deep dive on girls and we're really excited to be working with the young women's freedom center in planning that presentation for you. Um, And then we don't have something right now for December. So we'd love to open it up and hear thoughts and ideas. We also. Are happy to propose um, and we can do it. Uh, even more in November, when we come together, some potential ideas for, um, external speakers, we don't have to always be doing a deep dive into probation's data. We can also use those moments to do a deep dive into a particular topic where there may be an external expert that we want to hear from. Um, and so just want to open that up to you and I'm happy to answer uh, questions on any part of the data.
1: Thanks chief. Um. To go back to one of the slides that you had about new law violations versus warrants, is there anything that you could attribute that to, the flip in those two numbers?
10: I, you know, I um, so I would say a couple of things. One thing is that we had um, a number of young people coming in in the summer on warrants, so we had a handful of old cases where there were warrants out for young people. Um, for reasons for which they would not otherwise have been detained, like um, cases where the underlying charge was a drug sale, when the police interacted with the young person, but they had these old warrants out for them, so they were coming in on those warrants, and then those warrants were being cleared by the court. Um, and also, you know, a lot of our warrant cases are, have, over the since I've been here, have been cases where a young person has left a group home, they've left a placement, um, and then they wind up coming back into contact, coming back in on the warrant. And we just don't have as many kids in placement anymore. Right? We've seen those numbers in that unit come down. We've seen the use of placement come down. Um, so I would say that that's 1 reason. And then the other reason we've had so many new law violations coming in is that there's, I would say that it's a reflection of a lot of the community violence that we're seeing. Um, I think everybody here knows that for a long time over the last year, we had 1 young person facing homicide charges. Um, and now we have 5. so. It is a real reflection, I think, to some degree on uh, either solving of old cases that required long investigation by the police or more recent things. And then and the same thing with guns. You know, I, I just, I think that there's a lot of, um, carrying of guns and gun activity right now and you're seeing it reflected in how some of our kids are coming in.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Other
1: questions or. Comments for the chief about the slides that she's presented.
0: I see. Uh, I've got a couple I could ask. Go ahead, Commissioner.
6: Um, thank you as always, Chief Miller. And and crew and staff. <laughs> yeah. Um I wanted to ask, and sorry, I, I think you mentioned my page mm-hmm. numbers, slide numbers might be a little bit off. Um I think it, it it was slide twelve, at least in my version, the average length of stay, the sort of uh trend over time chart. That one. Oh, yes. Um it just it, it's pretty striking how how high. And I don't remember if this is one of the ones um where outliers really add to it. And so I think I previously asked if it was possible to do slides um or sort of visuals that break out that outlier so that we could see sort of more meaningful data from
10: it. Sure. And so there's, there, I would say are several outliers that relate to this and that this is why we've attempted on this slide to kind of show generally what the median lengths of stay are. um, So that you can see kind of that, like that out the, the averages may be really high in some cases. Um, so here's a great example, like, we'll look at August and you'll see that for, um. For black youth, right? The average keep of length of stay was 181. that includes some of those outliers, but then the median was 97. right? So we're trying to do it this way. We're still trying to kind of figure out the best way to show you. Um, but, uh, but it is. But to to your question, yes, exactly. Right? This upward trend you're seeing of the orange line, it reflects both our longest standing outlier young person. Right? Who's like, I said, been here for um, about 2 years. Uh, but it also reflects some of those juvenile hall commitments. Right, so the cases where the judges have committed a young person here for a while. So, you have a few examples like that that are going to drag up those those averages. So, I I would say we would love feedback on, and then this slide also shows the same thing, right? If you, if you look at the young people who remained in custody throughout the time period, this is that young person, right? They've been here for 707 days, and that's really affecting, obviously, this graph, and then on a much deeper level, that young person. we're trying to find the most effective ways to convey some of this information. That's what we're trying to do here, and we're happy to, of course, take feedback on the ways to make it most um, visibly accessible.
6: I wonder if if it was that, that one youth, it's definitely an outlier, but I wonder if there's also a couple other youth that have been judicially committed for a lengthy stay. Those may not be outliers anymore, right? Like, I, at what point does it 1 and 1 is an outlier, but and 5 when we're dealing with these numbers might not be
10: right. And so those, and they're not really outliers yet. Those young people, because those commitments have been pretty recent. So, you're going to see, they'll become potentially outliers over time. If they stay here for a long time, if the judges don't change their minds, um. Uh, because those are pretty recent commitments. So, really, I do think it's like this 707. Number is having a tremendous effect on this number, because we have so few kids in custody.
0: Right, right um, I, on. Slide 16 admissions trends.
9: Do you want this
6: 1? Yes. Oh, no previous 1. 16 right. I just wanted to say this was really helpful. <laughs> the, uh, the trends on the bottom, those two bullet points, are were very helpful to me,
9: yeah.
6: and I'm sure that the explanations above are generally helpful to interesting yeah. folks. Thank okay. you.
9: They're helpful to
6: me too. <laughs> um, on slides 20 and 21, I think those were to the referrals. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering if there was a way that we could visually break down how many cases were or how many youth were eligible for referrals, and then of those eligible, how many were made?
10: Mm -hmm. Eligible for referrals to CARC and to Make It Right? Right. Sure. And so, you know, I think we can look at that for CARC um, going forward. Because it is a good question, definitely, you know, not every young person arrested on a felony then came here. So it's a valid question of why are they not referred to CARC? And I think that's a good thing for us to kind of talk about and dig into. Um, And then, as you'll see, for example, there were 4 misdemeanors, but only 3 CARC referrals. Um, So, as examples, I can give you that of the 4 misdemeanors, 2 of them were sent to CARC. So, basically, CARC got 2 misdemeanors and 1 felony during this time. Um, 2 of them were not sent to car 1 of them was actually an out of county warrant. So another county had to pick up that young person. So they came in on a misdemeanor, but they had a warrant for another. Right. County. Um, and the other 1 was an 18 year old out of county transfer. So they got transferred in, even though they got arrested on a misdemeanor in that other county. We have no control when it's an out of county transfer like that. They're not going to spend a lot of time in custody, but that is that's the mechanism right now for them coming in. So, I can tell you that's why 2 of the 4 misdemeanor. Misdemeanors did not get to Cark, but it's a good question about the felonies. And then, honestly, the Make It Right referrals is a question for the DA's office. So the DA's office is the decision maker on that. Um, any case that we bring to them for for petition decisions, they're going to look at to decide if they want to send it to Make It Right. Um, so it's a great question for them, uh, and they have, uh, you know. Their own set of eligibility, which they've significantly expanded, um, but I would say does not include some of the kinds of offenses that resulted in kids getting booked, of course, in the last month.
6: Do we have any influence or discussions with the prosecutor office? Um. About make it right referrals, like how their criteria.
10: I'm sure so I uh, wrote the criteria when I worked <laughs> at the GS office. So, in a weird way, we've had you have influence. all the influence um, and they've actually significantly expanded the criteria right under the new leadership. So, um, you know, the the way that we relate is sometimes we will, when we're presenting a case, of course, we'll say to the DS office, hey, this seems like a good make it right case. Alternatively, sometimes we'll say, hey, We have some concerns about why this may not be a good make it right case, but they're very much their own independent mind on the decisions they make for it. Um, And they generally will not send a young person to make it right. Who's already under probation supervision, because it's very complicated to have 1 case. In the system and 1 outside, Um, and I'll just say, as a reminder, so many of our young people that we have right now have been kind of coming through
9: repeatedly.
6: Um, that might be a good segue. Um, I don't remember if I've, I've asked for this before if we've had this discussion before regarding a deeper dive into diversion and. Other referrals, um, maybe that could be, we could build that in to some other deep dive in the future. Got it. Um, And then I was kind of, I don't know how my fellow commissioners think about this, but I'm kind of curious to learn more about electronic monitoring. I saw it in 1 of, I think the deep dive slides coming up later. Um, But it's, I think it's a really interesting kind of hot topic. I would love personally to learn more about when that. When that's um, ordered for youth.
10: Sure, and I'm I'm going to note these, and then I'm going to respectfully say that uh, we will do these after the new year. Um, I will, uh, we have a lot of kind of deep data we are doing right now. And so these, they really give you a good sense on things like diversion will require a lot of really case specific analysis for us. So, we're very happy to do it. I don't think it's, it's not something that we'll be able to do in December.
6: No, certainly that's understandable. Yeah.
2: I will yield the floor. <laughs>
1: Are there other questions or comments for, <clears throat> excuse me, Chief Miller, about the slides that she has presented thus far?
0: this Commissioner Shorter. Go ahead, Commissioner. I, I just a uh, uh, point of clarification. Uh,
8: really, is just re- make it right referrals. Can you um,
10: describe what that means? Sure. So, so referral isn't real. I mean, it's not even the right word to use for make it right, because okay. it's not our decision. Um, it's just that they're, they're considered kind of a diversion model. And so we include them on this slide. So, with carc, you know, the way a case gets to CARK is that when the police have a young person that they're arresting, they're calling probation, they're calling carc. It's part of that the calls being connected to probation and we are weighing in on what happens. Do you release from the station with a citation? Do you bring me in person to CARC? Do you bring them here to book, right? Um, or, or sometimes do, you, well, there's there's those are the three big buckets. But those are actual uh, uh, probation officer decisions. Make it right is a DA decision. So we when when the, when uh, when probation brings cases to the DA's office for charging, then the DA who does the charging there is actually deciding whether they want to offer the young person make it right as a DA program. Um, so our our job in that is to be bringing the cases to the DA's office for charging that we would be bringing regardless, and then they're deciding at that point whether to divert out of prosecution into the program. So they're referring the case to
9: make it right, not us. If that makes sense.
10: And then just super quickly, um, make it what make it right is, commissioner, is it's a full diversion from prosecution. So in lieu of the DA filing a complaint against the young person, a petition against the young person, the young person is offered the opportunity to participate in restorative conferencing with the person they've harmed. And obviously that person's offered the opportunity to participate as well. And if the young person chooses to do that, Uh, each party has kind of separate conversations preparing to be in circle together, and then they go into a heavily facilitated circle. The outcome of it is an agreement where the young person, um, and, and both sides can have, like, their supporters in the circle and it's all kind of everyone's very collaboratively, uh, trying to resolve the harm. And the outcome is an agreement where the young person commits to specific steps to repair the harm to the harmed party slash victim to themselves to their family and to their community. And then a case manager who happens to also be at CARC supports the young person as they fulfill that agreement. If they fulfill the agreement, the DA's office just just does not proceed with prosecution. If they don't complete the program, the DA's office may go ahead and prosecute.
0: So it's its own diversion program from the DA. Yes.
8: One, what are the, the, what's the criteria, the type of cases that they would consider, because, I mean, he could just divert everybody to make it right?
10: Sure. So they don't. I mean, the numbers on the chart, right? All right. Here's the numbers. You can see, make it right is green in the chart. Uh Um, So when the program started about seven years ago, the initial, they were all felonies by design. It is for felonies. Because we already have misdemeanor diversion in San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the initial charges focused on, um. Some robbery, um, some, uh, theft, burglary and auto burglary over time. It was expanded to some additional charges. Um, and I, I don't want to go down too far down the rabbit hole, but I will say that from inception, the 1st, 5 years of make it right. were done as a randomized control trial. Um, and there were very important. Findings on how well the kids did and make it right relative to kids who were prosecuted. They did. They did better in terms of recidivism um, and the kids who did recidivate took a lot longer to recidivate. So, it was a heavily evaluated program, maybe something that you'll want to learn more about in another meeting. Um, But it's important to know that it had some very positive results. If you would like 1 thing we could offer to everybody, especially when we're talking about things like diversion right now. Um, California policy lab did just complete the evaluation on make it right? We could have, we could see if whether they could come and present to all of you in December. That may be a good deep dive. Uh, because they did just complete the study based on those years of data collection.
8: So, make it right has existed then for over 5 years.
10: Uh, 7 years, I think 7 years we started it around 2015, um, DA Gascon started make it right. Right, I was the lead
8: person in the office on it, right? That's that's why it sounded familiar. But I, (laughs) I thought you guys called it something else at that time, but. Okay, so it's always been make it right. Yeah. Um, Last question is, um. Does speaking on on diversion. Are does the probation department. Um, and this is not a, a partial question, but I'm just just trying to ask. Um. Does the probation does JPD still make. Referrals to programs like the detention diversion advocacy.
10: Program? So, we just, I know we just looked at some of that in our last deep dive. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, I think 1 of the things we all saw coming out of that was that we haven't been making a lot of referrals to it. And I think obviously the important conversation is how do we be making more. Early on in the, in, in the young person's experience, be making more referrals to things like data. That's definitely an important conversation. Mm-hmm. That we're hoping to jump into in the near future with our community partners. I'll talk about that a little later, okay. um, but, uh, absolutely. Um, yes, it is something that that probation can do. The other thing probation can do is divert a young person to informal supervision on our own. For some kinds of cases. And so I won't belabor other than to say that under the law, there are some kinds of cases where probation has the authority to divert um, a young person under 14, as long as it's not their second felony. So for 13-year-olds on a felony, we can divert. For any misdemeanors, we can divert. Um, but if it's a young person 14 or older with on, on their first felony, we have to bring it to the VA. If they're 13 and it's their second felony, we have to bring it to the DA. And that is why the DA's office started Make It Right, because there are cases that probation can't, could not divert even if it wanted to on its own authority.
9: Thank you. Sure.
0: Are there any other questions or comments for Chief Miller about the slides that she's presented? And I'll note that Commissioner Brodkin in our chat feature has suggested
1: that an upcoming meeting be on the closed juvenile hall working group report. I think perhaps commissioner, if you can hear us, it would make sense to um, take that up in. Future agenda items, I think the chief was referring more to future deep dives. Is that correct? Chief.
10: Um, that yes, that is what I meant.
1: When you were taking um, suggestions, I think that's what you were referring to. So.
7: Yeah, my point was just that um, I'm very eager to get to a point where all these different channels or threads of work um, that have been so isolated start coming together and this um, maybe this isn't what what the chief was talking about. I do think we have to devote a meeting or time or a couple of times to OK, now this big report that's been a two years in the making is going to be submitted to the board of Supervisors and I think our some serious time learning about it, studying what's in it and sort of figuring out how that affects our work and our thinking so that that's all I was thinking about. Um, it may not be quite on topic to, uh, in terms of a deep dive, but it's a deep dive um, that that we all need to do.
10: And, and, and if I may, I would just add to Commissioner Brocken's point that, you know, it may be something you want to consider doing in December, because I think you'll have it by then uh, what you may not have by then is the board's response to it. Right, right. Whether there's parts of it that they do or don't want to kind of go ahead with. So, I, uh, Commissioner broad, can I obviously leave it to you to think about. Whether you want this group to dig into it, it is I my understanding is it's over 100 pages at this point. So dig into it just as the report itself, or whether you want to wait for that um, next kind of phase of filtering.
7: But it covers everything we've just been talking about warrants and it, it just, just everything and it's quite it's quite an amazing report uh and so i just want to make sure we we know about it and we do our due diligence to understand it and you you know it's just such an important thing that's happening now how and when we do it the i think the report will be done by november and december would be a good time to actually start to look at the 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 major findings
0: and recommendations.
7: And I have found a hot spot. I am in a <laughs> inn in Dorset, Vermont, looking at the most beautiful leaves in the world. Um, and I have I'm I'm now at the core of the computer hot spot of this inn, so I'm so excited.
1: Excellent. Well, we're glad that you have a uh, sustainable internet, and um, I do agree with you that um, the closed juvenile hall working group report um, is definitely, I think, probably top of mind for all of us uh, here on the commission. So, um, I think, if, uh, Chief, did you say December made the most sense? I, I mean, I
10: would definitely leave it to the commission. Uh, we would be. Um- we would consider it a holiday gift to us if uh, JPD was not doing a deep data dive and analysis ourselves in December. <laughs> so, if you want to use December to look at it, I, I agree with Commissioner Brodkin that it's uh, timely and will require a lot of time.
1: Great, so that we will make a formal motion at the future agenda items to have that for December. Um, but I think that's, that's a great suggestion and. Uh to your point, Commissioner, uh what better deep dive than to deep dive on that issue? Because we know that it's the most important one that we're addressing. So um thank you for that recommendation. I think that there were no further questions or comments. So, Chief, if you want to continue.
10: Um, sure. So we're gonna be moving on to the deep dive, um, which is of course our uh DRI analysis. And so I will hand it over, Maria. Is it you or Selena sharing?
11: Um, Selena is going to share and then we're both going to talk.
10: Okay. I'll hand it over to Maria and Selena and take myself. Off audio. And- Great.
0: Great. Thank you. Chief. All right.
10: Ooh, can everyone see my
0: screen? Yes. Okay.
4: This is the 1st time I haven't had back and forth with WebEx share screen. So it's very exciting moving up in this world. All right. So today uh, we are talking about the JPD detention risk instrument, the DRI analysis. I'm going to kick it right over to Maria. To give a little bit of introduction.
11: Okay. Thank you all for your attention to this topic, which um, is one that you consider very important. Um, In many of the city's juvenile justice reform spaces, including the closed juvenile hall work group and the blue ribbon panel, there's been a lot of discussion about the risk instruments that JPD uses. Um, So one thing we wanna do today is to clarify um, that there are two tools that are being discussed that are used by JPD. One is the Detention Risk Instrument or the DRI, which is what we're talking about today. And the other is the YLS or the Youth Level of Service Instrument. The YLS is a validated predictive risk needs assessment tool, which means that through extensive research, it's been demonstrated to predict subsequent justice system involvement for young people and to identify needs that if addressed will reduce the likelihood of subsequent justice system contact. And JPD currently uses the YLS to identify risk level and to develop case plans for youth. We're not talking about that today. We've talked about that another day. Um, the DRI is not a risk assessment tool. It, um, it is sort of like, I, it's kind of like a, it's a structured decision-making tool. It's kind of like a decision tree um, that JPD has used for many years <laughs> to inform the decision about whether to detain a young person or not. Um, and we're going to get really, we are really going deep today. So we'll get really into the weeds of all of kind of what I'm talking about. But I wanted to start with that because I just want to make sure we all have the same language. So the DRI, despite the use of the word risk in it, is not actually a risk assessment tool. Um, so the first slide that Selena has up is the chart that you receive every month in the monthly statistics report about the primary detention reasons. Um, And as we've discussed um, and what you can see on the top of each of those bars, those like peach and orange sections of the bars, um, those are mandatory detentions that are where state law mandates that a youth who is brought into into custody under certain circumstances be detained until they can appear before a judge and those ten are predominantly youth who are 14 years or older who are arrested for personal use of a firearm in the commission of a felony or youth who are arrested for 707 B charges, which are more serious and violent charges um, and youth who are brought into custody pursuant to a court order or a warrant um, and youth who are transferred in. So, That we don't really, we do that is in the DRI, those mandatory detentions, but that's obviously they're mandated, so we don't need any decision making assistance for circumstances that are not mandated by law. JPD uses the DRI and the intention is to to kind of generate consistent detention decisions for similar circumstances. Um, Since Chief Miller started in her role, uh, we've had extensive internal conversations about the DRI's effectiveness and value, um, and and done a lot of research and analysis, rather, Selena has, um, which we're going to present today. Um, And so we can kind of talk through what the outcomes of the DRI are, its shortcomings, and um, how JPD has determined that we can improve detention decision making Um, And particularly with an effort to reduce the opportunity for bias. So now I can go to the next slide. Um, What is the DRI and why do we have the DRI? That's what I was asking like every day when I first started at JPD. Um, It is a sort of product of the juvenile detention alternatives initiative era, which some of you might be familiar with. In the 1990s, the Annie E. Casey Foundation sponsored the JDAI initiative, which is a national initiative that touched many juvenile probation departments across the country with the goal of reducing unnecessary use of secure detention, increasing the use of non-secure alternatives and improving conditions in secure detention facilities. Um, And JPD has long been a JDAI site, Um, and adopted those principles as well. And in that vein, uh, and kind of something that was recommended by the JDAI was to implement a detention screening tool to score youth on various factors to determine who should be securely detained when detention was not mandated. as I said before, and we'll keep saying over and over again, the DRI is not a predictive risk assessment tool. It has not been evaluated. It has not been shown to predict any outcomes and we should not assume that it predicts anything. It's a decision making tool. Um, and then I would ask why, why are we using a not scientifically validated tool that has the word risk in it? And um, it was, I was developed by JPD staff many years ago through a staff driven process, which was what, how Annie e. Casey recommended it be developed. Cause what they were trying to do, you know, like a, a moment when it was brand new and really bold was just add some consistency and structure to that decision making um, and to make sure there was staff buy in on that decision making to reduce um, secure detention. And and the JDAI has been successful in doing that in San Francisco and in California and across the country. Um, So I do think that that initiative with the use of tools like the DRI um, has been successful, but we can always do better, which is clear um, still. And I think it will be clear when you see Selena's presentation. Um, And the last thing I wanna talk with you guys about, before I hand it over to Selena, you can go to the next slide. I just always think it's helpful to review, like where does the data come from? (laughs) Um, So the DRI is part of an operational process at JPD. Um, So every single time that a youth is arrested for a misdemeanor or a felony in San Francisco, the police making that arrest call CARC, um, if it's during business hours, or if not, they call JPD directly, um, in anyone in all of those instances, whether it goes to Cark 1st, or directly to JPD, um, that the on duty officer at JPD completes a DRI by answering and scoring a series of questions regarding the current offense and the nature of the charges to determine whether or not detention is mandated. The youth's legal status, like whether or not they're on probation or have pending cases, and then a series of aggravating and mitigating factors. And Selena's going to get really deep into the weeds of each of those sections of the DRI. So that's just the high level. Um, If they're mandated to be detained by law or through that, like through those questions and scoring, they get a score of 11 or above, then they're booked into juvenile hall. Um, if it's not mandated by law or the score is under 11, then the outcome of the DRI should be a site or release, but there is also the opportunity for an override. If the officer of the day determines that the continued detention of the minor, um, is immediately and urgently necessary for the protection of the minor or for the protection of another person, or if the minor is a flight risk. So it goes like basically police call, officer of the day, does the DRI, gets an outcome, and then that triggers whether or not there would be an admission into juvenile hall or a citation and release. And I will now hand it over to Selena, thank you. All right, thank you, Maria. So now getting into the
4: data and methods of the analysis, there were really four research questions that were guiding this analysis. So first off, What percentage of detention decisions are determined by DRI scoring as opposed to being mandated or automatic as determined by JPD policy? The second one was how does scoring break down across sections and is scoring across DRI sections reliable? Related to that, do subjective sections in the DRI result in disparate scoring? And the last one, is what have been the circumstances surrounding more recent admissions to juvenile hall for DRI scores greater or equal to 11? So in 2021. As for the data and sample that I was analyzing, it's DRI's from June 2018 through June 2021, so over a three-year period, linked to youth level data. But one thing that I want to highlight here is that this sample does exclude sealed records. So. In some senses, looking at the n, at the number, isn't as meaningful as looking at uh, the percentage. Sorry, I just wanna make sure you all can hear me.
0: I don't know if this is coming in better. We can,
1: it's just that maybe the volume is a little bit lower.
0: Okay,
4: I will make sure to speak into it. Uh, okay, so as for the sample demographics for all these DRIs completed, um, three quarters of the sample were boys, 60, just under 60% of youth were Black youth, about a quarter were Latinx youth, um, smaller percentages of AAPI, white youth, and youth of other or unknown race and ethnicity. Uh, and the majority of DRIs were for young people age 14 through 17, about 85% of this sample. Here, we just thought it would be helpful to provide a breakdown of detention decisions overall. um, And how these detention decisions were determined. So, 42% of detention decisions were made as a result of the DRI, whereas um, 58% were either mandatory or automatic detentions. And so going into the first category, so state mandated or automatic detention cases. So as Marie mentioned, if a state mandated or automatic reason for the detention is selected, then the detention decision is not based off the DRI score. Um, historically, the scoring portion of DRIs has, has been completed even in these mandatory and automatic detention cases, even though the DRI score is inconsequential in these scenarios. So here I provide throughout the presentation some screenshots of what our DRI tool looks like on paper, but here you see the first section where um, JPD staff select whether it is an automatic detention case and whether it is automatic versus mandatory. Um, I won't spend too much time on this because Maria walked through it but Looking at that same pie graph that I showed earlier of detention decisions overall, um, and the 58% that were related to mandatory or automatic detention um, here, you see on the right hand side. This bar graph, you can tell here that categories are not mutually exclusive, right? If you add up each of these scenarios, it adds up to more than 100%. So, multiple of these scenarios can be selected. And if one is selected, then it is a mandatory detention. You see that by far the most common scenarios are young people coming in on a 707B offense, age 14 or older, and young people coming in on warrants.
0: So next, breaking
4: down the actual meat of this presentation, the DRI-related detention decisions. Um, so. If a state mandated or automatic detention reason is not selected, then the detention decision is based off the DRI score. And again, if a young person scores 11 or higher on the DRI, then the recommendation of the DRI is to detain. And so while scores are calculated for all youth, I'm really focusing on the young people's DRIs where the DRI actually drove the detention decision for this section. So again, looking at that pie graph where 42% of detention decisions were related to the DRI, you see that within this sample, um, just over half of these youth were released, so 56%. 29% were detained due to their DRI score, and 15% were detained due to a DRI override. Next, I'm going to walk through each section of the DRI and then the rate at which different fields within the DRI are selected. So the very 1st section, once you pass. Through the state mandated automatic detention scenarios is about the offense and so multiple offense categories may apply. A young person can come in on a misdemeanor and then also a possession of a firearm, but. If multiple categories apply, only the most serious is scored. And you'll see here that for um, DRIs, where the DRI determined a detention decision, uh, most often selected are these all other felonies, all misdemeanor categories, which for us really made it seem like we have a lot of categories that people have to look through just to that don't end up getting scored anyways. The next section on the DRI is present legal status. So just like the last section, multiple legal status situations may apply, but only the highest is score. And here you see that most often the scenario that was selected um, is that a young person had no prior adjudications. This was followed by young people who were on probation, and then the rest of the legal status
0: scenarios were much less common. Next is getting into these more discretionary
4: sections of the DRI where bias is definitely able to creep in and affect scoring. So, first, looking into aggravating factors, Uh, the takeaway from this section is that Um, about half of young people are scored for aggravating factors, um, more common ones being risk of flight input from arresting officer and other. These are not a score the most serious that applies, but score all that apply, but then the max that a young person can get in terms of aggravation points is 3 points. And so breaking down that other section. Um, what you see here, when you break out the. The reasons that are listed under other when, uh. It's specified are reasons that you either see. Within this section as other aggravating factors, so. Um, behavior during arrest is measured in other aggravating factors here, um, or you see. Um. Things that are measured in other parts of the DRI, so current offense, right? There's already a section for current offense legal status. There's already a section for legal status. Um, so just a lot of repeating the same questions. And the opportunity to score young people multiple times for the same thing. Looking at aggravating factors by demographics, you see that girls. Got an average higher score of aggravating factors than boys and youth of color with a higher average aggravating factor score than white youth. Next, looking into mitigating factors. So, again, a very subjective section, Um, the main takeaway from here is that most. Uh young people were not scored to have any mitigating factors. So 85% of DRIs in our sample had no mitigating factors selected. Um, the other ones that could be selected were cooperative during arrest, input from arresting officer, parent able to supervise, or 707 B offense under the age of 14. Um, this is similar to the aggravating factors where you can select multiple that apply. Here, the max is 4 points for mitigating points. And then, unlike the prior section, where I was able to break it down by demographics, that wasn't really something I could do in this section, because there were so few, um, cases where mitigating factors were selected. So, the ends got really small when trying to break it down by demographics. Looking at aggravating and mitigating factors overall and their effect on detention scoring outcomes. um, This is a slide that should be interpreted with caution because the numbers aren't reflective of reality because it excludes sealed records. But the takeaway from here was that the detention scoring outcome was affected by the inclusion of these discretionary factors. So aggravating and mitigating factors in less than 3% of cases, right? So there was all this effort spent trying to score young people on these very subjective factors where bias definitely could creep in. And a lot of times it didn't end up making any sort of a difference in the outcome. Next, so all those sections were uh, different categories scored on the DRI. Um, this section is about detention override. So, once, um, a DRI is completed and the recommendation is based off scoring, there's also the opportunity to seek out an override. And so what I did here was I explored the kind of qualitative data that we could take away from this question of the minor is detained because so looking into the situations when, um, Overrides were done. And what I saw here was, again, a lot of repetition and things that were already captured in other uh, sections of the DRI. So no guardian, cannot return home, um, offense history and legal status, um, things that were already captured elsewhere as well. Um, Overrides by gender, boys had a slightly higher rate of overrides than girls. And then overrides by race of ethnicity, again, you see that youth of color had higher override rates. than white youth, particularly Latinx youth, which in exploring the data and looking into the reasons why this was the case, you saw a lot of scenarios where it was an unaccompanied minor that didn't have anywhere to go. Didn't have a parent that could be reached um, to be released to. Maria, I don't know if you want to provide some additional information on policy changes that we've implemented since
11: discovering this. Sure so um, just as a reminder, Selena's study starts in starts when our new case management system started, which is in June 2018 so we're covering a pretty long time period including an extensive period prior to Chief Miller's tenure um, and so at the beginning of Chief Miller's tenure sheet, we did note that there was a large number of unaccompanied minors who were being detained, um, not because their charges or other legal circumstances would warrant detention, but simply because there was no safe non-secure place to put them because they're unaccompanied Um, and so uh, at that time as soon as it was identified the chief convened meetings with um, community-based partners and justice partners um, to identify a solution and so um, now those youth are um, there's a like more immediate contact with the human services agency, child welfare, and um, those youth if they're eligible can also be placed at Huckleberry house. So those numbers of youth being placed for that reason has gone down significantly. And I think I can't actually remember the last time that a youth was detained because they were unaccompanied and there was not um, a safe place for them to go home to. And chief Miller feel free to jump in also if you want to add anything to that discussion.
10: Oh, thank you. You make me sound great. I'll let you keep going.
11: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Selena. Thank you. All
4: right. Thanks. Maria. So, then going into the last slide exploring this. Kind of phenomenon of double scoring. Kids for the same thing I wanted to look into how aggravating factors and overrides related and so in DRI's where at least 1 aggravating factor was listed. The young person was significantly more likely to have an override done in that case, a detention override. And then, as I mentioned, our last research question of who is being admitted into detention in 2021 for their DRI scores greater or equal to 11. And the takeaways here, um, I'm gonna. Get past this sample demographics in the interest of time, but the main takeaway here was that in terms of admissions, uh, most of the young people. So 70% of the young people were admitted because of their offense score alone. Right? If you come in. Uh, and the offense that is scored is possession of a firearm that puts you at 11. As it is right, no other legal status factors, anything else needs to come into play you already reached the score of 11. And so this was for uh, 70% of DRI score admissions um, in 2021. And when breaking that out, three quarters of those cases were for gun carrying and possession and one quarter were for being armed during commission of a felony or attempt. And then we see that less common were young people who Were admitted because of a variety of factors, so their offense score, right? Was anywhere from 5 to 7. Definitely not putting them at that 11 threshold, but then adding that offense score with the legal status and then the possibility of aggravating factors was what put them over the score of 11. And so all of this data, all of this research has um, really had us realize some main takeaways about the DRI uh, internally. So the first being that the DRI is inefficient. So a significant amount of time is spent checking boxes that often do not even affect detention decisions. Uh, The second being the DRI scoring is unreliable. So there are multiple sections on the DRI that allow for bias to factor into scoring, right? If multiple people were scoring a scenario, are we confident that the young person would be scored the same in every scenario? I think the answer to that question, based off all this data, is no. Um, the third being that the DRI scoring is arbitrary. So, scenarios where a youth scores 11 or more are not always situations where secure detention is necessary, right? Like, if a young person uh, has an offense of drug sale and they're on probation, what makes that a situation that's automatically um, necessitates secure detention? And the last being, What Maria mentioned at the beginning is that the predictive validity of the DRI is unknown. So its ability to predict reoffending or failure to appear has never been tested. And so all of these takeaways have helped inform, um, a more streamlined decision making tool that only accounts for the most salient factors that would require secure detention and at the same time reduce opportunities for bias to creep into these decisions. And so what we came up with was a streamlined decision tool, uh, which I will walk you through this decision tree. So if young people age 12 or older are referred to JPD, there's the first set of questions, right? Do any of the following apply? Um, A young person, at least 14 years old, arrested for personal use of a firearm in the attempt or commission of a felony, or arrested for any offense listed um, in the 707B of the Welfare and Institutions Code. Also, if a young person of any age is brought into custody pursuant to a court order, bench warrant, or arrest warrant, or a youth of any age is transferring custody from another jurisdiction. So, again, this does not change. This is the state-mandated reasons for detention. If any of these apply, then it's a mandatory booking. If none of these apply, Then we look at the next, um, series of questions relating to either the nature of offense and circumstance, or the safety of the young person. So, as for nature of offense and circumstance, youth of any age. um, brought in on a felony firearm offense, or youth of any age brought in on a courtesy hold for another law enforcement agency. What a courtesy hold is. A courtesy rule means that a young person is being held as a courtesy to an agency in another jurisdiction. So, when, for example, the U.S. Marshal arrests a person in one jurisdiction and detains them in a local facility until they can be transported, this is very rare. There's been one case in the past year of detention admission data that we've presented where this has happened. The other 2 scenarios have to do with the place, the safety of a young person. So placement, return or failure, where a non secure option is not available again. This is currently an automatic detention in our. DRI. And then a scenario where a parent or guardian is not available or willing to supervise where a non secure option is not available. So if any of these situations apply, then this would be a non mandatory booking. And then, if none of these two sets of scenarios apply, then it would be a site and release. Um, I want to note here that there still is. Uh, if the staff completing the DRI feels that additional factors should be considered in the decision to detain, they are able to seek approval for an override from a supervisor. Maria, I don't know if you want to hop in here and provide more context about that. Um, or anything relating to this decision tool.
11: <laughs> Thank you so much, Selena. Um, so I think, but 1st, thing I want to emphasize is that we know that the landscape for juvenile detention is changing significantly. Um, specifically due to the closed juvenile hall work group and the record their um, forthcoming recommendations, but we also have to um, adapt to the current circumstances until whatever comes next is implemented. And so that's why this is sort of our interim best next step solution is just how can we streamline that decision as much as possible um, to try to really limit detention to those circumstances where it appears to where it is either mandated or um, where the public safety concern is so great that it would warrant it. Um, As Selena mentioned, courtesy, are super duper rare, but it's sort of a situation where you're not going to not detain. It's, It's like a circumstance where normally there would be a warrant, but there's not because it's like weird law enforcement stuff. So I wouldn't spend too much time thinking about that. For the safety of the minor situations, those are things that used to play a larger role in detention in San Francisco, but through policy change by Chief Miller have now been significantly minimized. So they're happening... Almost never, like I don't, I also can't remember the last time that we had a placement return or failure, that that was the only thing that a detention um, was based on. Um, But if there is a situation where we have nowhere else to put a young person, we cannot release them to nothing. So I think we do everything we can to see if they can be released to child welfare or to uh, shelter. And we're coming up with additional opportunities like our um, new resource family pilot To continue to minimize that, but it's just sort of something that we have to contemplate in our decision making. Um, And then, as Selena just was referencing, there is still the opportunity to do an override because. Particularly with a really streamlined tool, we can't account for everything and there may be circumstances where staff have a strong rationale for seeking detention. They do have to seek approval from their supervisor, um, which during uh, the midnight shift is the director of juvenile hall actually who makes that approval. Um, and they have to describe after that has to be a written rationale and it's guided by a policy for when overrides are appropriate. Um, And I and again, our our goal is to minimize overrides as well, um, because the purpose of standardized decision making is that you won't have a lot of variation across different people who are making the decisions Um, overrides have been historically pretty rare and we will um, and we already do monitor them every month for you and would continue to monitor them every month so that we can make sure that we don't by, by making this change where we're streamlining kind of then create a collateral consequence of increasing overrides or something along those lines. Um, and this will be incorporated into our case management system. It's been a long policy conversation that was informed by a lot of robust research and analysis by Selena over the course of several months. Um, and now it's under development to be incorporated into the case management system so that it can be implemented into our day-to-day operations. And we and with that we are done and we are happy to take any questions ourselves or for Chief Miller.
1: Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Selena. Um, A lot of information to take in. Um, I appreciate um, the deep dive though. I mean, that was literally uh, a deep dive. Um, So I think I'm still thinking through some of my questions. I had some more questions related to the history of the DRA, but I want to kind of collect my thoughts um, and I'll just open it up for the rest of the commissioners
0: um, if they have questions. I'm more than happy to jump in unless anyone wants to go 1st. Commissioner, thank you.
6: Um, Surprising no 1, I want to thank the 3 of you and your team very, very, very much for this deep dive. As you know, I've been trying to get this on our agenda for quite some time and I really appreciate the thoroughness. Um, I also really appreciate the takeaways as they were essentially. The reasons that I wanted to get into this deep dive and have been asking them from the start. Um, as I think most of, you know, my background is, um. Both in criminal justice and also in juvenile justice and dependency, which is very related and there's a similar risk assessment. Tool in dependency uh, that likewise, I think allows for a lot of bias and allows for a lot of, um really harmful discretion. I don't know if that's a phrase, but I'm gonna do it now. Um, So I I just wanted to start by noting the numbers, I think were a little bit hard for me to conceptualize in terms of like how many actual youth we were talking about here, but I I thought I recall seeing on slide 12 that there were about 89 overrides. Um,
4: Yes, although I do want to flag that because of sealed records, we don't have the full like, universe of DRI's that have been completed over the 3 year period. But I do think that you can take away from, like, the percentages and the proportions that each scenario accounts for. So 15% of the time. Right,
11: right. So the total um, out of. 1377. Yeah. Thank you. At least. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot, but not, not maybe relatively not as much.
6: <laughs> right. That's, that's completely accurate. I think uh, essentially 90 youth who, according to this wacky tool, did not have a mandatory detention, our probation officers and other folks had the power to de- essentially unilaterally decide that they were going to be detained regardless of what the tool came up with is really concerning. Um, so first, I, I wanna thank you for the uh, interim, interim proposals at the end because I, I do hope we get to implement those. Um, really, I so many of my notes are things that Selena has already pointed out, uh, including in, I guess form C, uh, slide 15 through 19, those aggravating and mitigating factors, it's the same thing in dependency, where really it's it's just how people are feeling that day. Um, you know, if the officer felt slighted, if um, something like that, if the parent's phone was off because, or they couldn't answer because they were at work or something like that. And as you pointed out, these things are repetitive right like the minute that you have or, or when you have one of these factors that someone feels is happening in a situation that can add up the score to tilt it so much that that really is bias right that it really, really is an emotional reaction that though i i would assume that the whole purpose of the dra was to number one limit and reduce number of youth that we're detaining and number two to eliminate bias as much as possible but then essentially if you're going to have a numerical formula and sort of say we have this we have this tool this is why our system is not biased you really can't then have aggravating factors like input from arresting officer and uncooperative during arrest um, and then also other police specify and then those are not those are not reasons that are specified um i know i'm essentially preaching to the choir and again i really thank you for your takeaways um and i i just wanted to point out perhaps i was reading it wrong in slide 19 the number was that 75 I, I, please let me know if i'm reading this wrong it seems to me that 75 percent of youth would have scored under the 11 and and that's just, that's a really high percentage of, of youth that we are, I just, I just don't think this is a, appropriate. I'm obviously not articulating this very well, just because this is so upsetting to me. Um, and so I'm really glad we're breaking it down, because these are the things that I anticipated coming from my background, uh, and to see it here essentially on paper is just, it's, it's difficult to take in. Um, also, I, I think in a couple of the slides, including slide 17, it, it was really easy to see that it this bias and this discretion impacted our youths of color so much more than our white youths, which again is just compounding the reasons of why we should not be using or not having any sort of override capability here, um, and the the override the override reasons in the next couple of slides. Same thing, I think in slide 20, was it? As you pointed out, Selena, again, the reason the minors are detained are the reasons that we saw in C&D already. And it's it's just, it's not right. Um, Also the fact that 10% are unknown because there's just no reason for the override, like that, if, if there's anything, That can be done to mandate that if someone is going to override that there has to be a specific reason, like this cries out for needing uh, an officer to explain why. They are doing this and and other than 1 of the reasons articulated above. Right? And again, I think in slides 21 and 24, we could again, see that our youth of color were being detained by overrides. More than our white youth. So again, it's just really striking how this shows, even when we tried to use an impartial formula, it just doesn't work if we allow for overrides and discretion and feelings essentially that are mitigating or aggravating. Um, So I don't wanna repeat myself over and over and I don't wanna repeat Selena over and over. Um, I'm wondering in the interim tools, Uh, For the idea of still having essentially some. Like, why are we having this decision tool that allows for non mandatory booking and. Is there going to be more that's required of an officer before this can be done? Is there a a formal write up? Is there. um, Something else that we can use to. Still tamp down on. Bias and really discretion.
11: So 1st thing I want to say is there's sort of this there's once we address the mandatory decisions, then there's sort of like 2 next layers. There's this policy uh, for non mandatory bookings. that's very clearly specified youth of any age felony firearm offense it's actually gonna be categorized in the statute table, which statutes apply. Um, And uh, the way it will work in the case management system is that will actually be scored for the officer. So it it will be the system being like, does this statute apply? Yes, okay, you meet the threshold for the policy outcome. Um, The safety of the minor questions about placement return or failure or parent guardian not available or willing to supervise is gonna be the one portion of the decision tree where the officer will be making that assessment. But again, through policy changes that Chief Miller has implemented, those circumstances are exceedingly rare now and we're doing everything we can to make them non-existent. However, I think we still have to acknowledge that there could be a circumstance where there is a young person who has nowhere to go. Um, And like that leaves us uh, unless child welfare is willing to step in. Um, and then I think that with any decision tree process or assessment process, you have we also have to acknowledge that we can't predict everything. And so we do have to have an override um, option, which is sort of the option of last resort if the officer of the day completing it. Feel strongly that an override is warranted that override has to be approved by a supervising probation officer to be implemented. Um, there is written policy that it has to be narrowly tailored to only circumstances where the safety of the minor is a concern. The safety of another person is a serious concern, or there's a serious flight risk. I know that those are kind of discretionary to some degree. Um, Again, I think that's what what management is for. So I think that our supervising probation officers and the director of juvenile hall will be taking those things into careful consideration. And then we do review this with you every single month, and we will be doing that internally as well. And one of Selena's many, many projects is building out the ability for us to... in almost real time monitor um, activities within the department. And so this can be something that could actually be looked at even more regularly, like daily eventually, um, so that we can make sure that it's not happening often and the chief can have visibility on it as well. And if we see any increases in overrides even happening more frequently than like once a month, then I think that that's a time where we clearly have to um, tweak our policy to be to take that into consideration, why would we be seeing that? What is the problem that we haven't accounted for? Is it, for example, that we need to have even better collaboration with child welfare or something along those lines?
10: And and I would also jump in to add that you know, two things. One is, I think a good example of this is the way we've changed our policy around when POs can seek to detain a young person for violating probation, right? So that used to be much more of a common practice and then we added the simple layer that the cases had to be reviewed originally it was by the assistant chief now it's by the director of probation services so po's have to that's not this situation but it's a situation where po's have to actually make their case right like this is why the only thing i think is left at this point is detention Um, and sometimes you know there would be times when the director might say yes but there's often times where they say now, not approving it, go back and do more, you know, community-based work with that young person. Obviously this is a little different because it's the upper level management will be seeing these things after the fact But we're gonna be looking very carefully at them to Maria's point, especially in these early days and doing a little bit of a post-mortem, right? Like why was that decision made? Um, and then the other thing I just wanna note is that, you know, that first box Those young people have to stay in custody until they go before a a judge, right? But a situation where we can't find a parent or guardian, or they're unwilling, or we can't find a non secure option. That is dynamic. And so we may be in a moment having to detain a young person because we can't find a parent, guardian or other responsible adult, but that may change by the next morning. And we can release the young person at that point. So I do wanna draw the distinction, right? That when it's based on that lack of alternative, I think it's incumbent on us to then be finding that alternative. And that also goes into, we'll talk talk about it a little bit later, but some of the work we wanna be collectively now doing with our CBO partners is what does that front end intake collaborative planning look like, right? How are we all at the table doing our best to identify where a young person may go, who doesn't need to be in court, be in custody until they get before a judge, right? As well as the ones who do. But, you know, how can we make sure that's happening? And I'll even give an example, you know, we had a case this fall where a young person came in Saturday night. Their parent was like, no way. I am not coming to get them. I I'm so mad <laughs> right? Like, I won't come, but by like the next morning, the parent was ready and the young person got released and so. There will be some times when that happens, but it uh, still, I think, is the goal on us, even in those moments, to be actively trying to get the young person out as fast as we can.
9: And then I did just want to
10: reiterate something that had been been said a few times about the courtesy hold. Um, often, you know. Comment to you guys that there are titles that are like the worst name ever for things in the system. And I think that's one of them. Sounds so light and polite. Um, and the one example I would give to Selena's point in the or Maria's point, one of their points, in the last year was a young person who the federal marshals were holding. And it was a question about whether that young person stayed in their custody or got to actually be somewhere like where they could sleep and eat until they could be transported one time have we seen it happen so we had to add it in but i really want to reiterate that it is a rarity it is a terrible name and it was it's an a moment where we did feel like it was a better place for a young person to be
6: i i really appreciate um all of that and um i love the way that Marian and Selena keep touting all of your policy changes, Chief Miller. it's really heartwarming um, and and you know it's it's great it's not only heartwarming but it is really great. I do appreciate your work and the changes that you have implemented um, in the department. I am curious though it seems and maybe I'm reading this wrong, but it seems like the first step is to see if the youth is over the age of twelve and then my question would be how much effort are we putting into Checking if a parent or guardian is available or willing, um, and related. I take it back. I don't have a few questions. Um, <laughs> it's related to. I heard uh, if child welfare is not willing to step in, what do we do? And to me, having and you too, Chief Miller, having worked in the dependency systems, if if child welfare isn't willing to step in, shouldn't that be a cue to us to also? Reconsider why an officer is requesting that this youth be detained, um, essentially that I feel like that is. A second agency and their. Job is to focus on the safety of, of minors and so if they decline to get involved, I think that should be a really big cue that we also should not be involved. Um,
10: so, I, I, uh totally hear you and you and i have both operated in that universe i will say it is a very common matter of practice that cps will not step in when there's been a young person arrested until the da makes a decision about whether they're going to charge the case so if a kid, young person comes in and the da decides they're not charging it then we see cps coming and and picking up that young person but they generally are waiting for that decision Um, because, as you know, as, you know, commissioner, once that once it seems like, perhaps that young person's crossing over into this system. Sometimes there's a pulling back on the other side. So, it's, I think it's a really important conversation. It's something that we've been having as a policy discussion that does seem to be the, the. Kind of admitted practice of when they will engage.
0: I I understand yes it
6: it is a a back and forth between the two departments child welfare and and our department but I just there I again I, I think my focus of this conversation especially after having been reminded of all of the all of the turning points where bias can be I don't wanna say implemented, but like, you know, where, where bias can happen and where emotions, especially if officers can run high, I, I would like to tamp those down. So I, I would really encourage us to really take more account into what child welfare is doing. And if they are saying, well, we wanna wait and see what the DA is going to do, why don't we do that too before we detain them? Cause it looks like at the I end can, of this
10: closure. Right, so I just, and so maybe, so I may be mishearing what you're saying, so correct me if I'm not, but when we're talking about CPS engaging, it's not because it's a case where we're saying, well, we just don't want to send the kid home because maybe we have concerns about the home, right? It's really that we're saying, hey, CPS, and let's use like unaccompanied minors as the example. There is a young person here to whom we have no adults to release, right? And if they won't come and get that young person, or Huckleberry can't take them for some reason, like, we can't just turn a minor out on the street. And so that's the situation we're talking about. It's not where CPS has made a judgment about the quality of the home or whether they need to engage. It's cases where we cannot identify any adult anywhere to take a minor. Then we just can't. And and I I do want to say one thing about Huckleberry, just to reiterate that. So Huckleberry, for example, cannot take a young person who's already on probation. So if a young person comes in here, on an unaccompanied minor, again, great example, who hasn't had any contacts with us, they're not on probation, we can send them to Huckleberry House instead of detaining them. If they are come to police attention, they're unaccompanied, you know, it's a drug charge, not a charge we would need to detain for, but they're on probation. Huckleberry House cannot accept them. So there is discussion going on around them. Like, what is that alternative place, right? For a young person in that situation.
11: Yeah, I just wanted to 2nd, how chief Miller ended that, which is like, I agree with you commissioner Chu. It's like, well, how can this be the only solution? Um, And I think the answer is it it shouldn't be and that we can imagine and create a better solution. And I also think that's part of what the closed juvenile hall work group. Um recommendations in part will address is like you know, what does the front door look like, and shouldn't the front door look different than it does now, where in some circumstances you're detaining just because you have no no alternative? right. I wonder
6: then if perhaps uh, and my other question was going to be, what is the the data collection, what is the the process um, uh, what is the oversight what how how do we check and really see when this is happening so is there paperwork for lack of a better word is there an application uh what has to be done to memorialize the reasons here and it, if it's a, a similar flow chart or a scale why don't we separate out unaccompanied minors from the other minors who are not able or, or willing um because i think that like you said is is a great example but i think that's pretty different than the dependency situations I'm I'm thinking of. Um so I I would ask to kind of see. I mean obviously yeah. I can't look into these cases, but um but like is there some sort of structure for when these um when these cases come up, what does it look like? Can we piece out unaccompanied minors from parents or guardians who are unable or unwilling? And then also perhaps that should tie in more to Resource, uh, resource families and are, can we do more of that? Can we engage with them more? Can we say, look, this is what happens if we don't find an RFA to place this child and this, this youth in? We'll have to detain them.
10: Right. I think that's exactly one of the points of the resource families is to give us so that it will, when it says non-secure option not available, it will become a moot thing, right? There will be a non-secure option available in the moment. Um, I, I do think that, so we are obviously, we'll be tracking what all the reasons are. Um, I think the one uh, concern I have about pulling out our unaccompanied minors and tracking them in our system is that we really try not to identify people as unaccompanied in our, as, as you know, undocumented basically in our system. Um, so it's a balance for us of understanding how it's affecting this and also. Um, being very careful about attaching that label to a young person in a in a. Documented way,
6: no, that that's fair and that's definitely. A a good cautionary way to proceed. Um. Although I, my understanding is that our city is sanctuary and we don't cooperate uh, with ice and which I'm very glad for and supportive of. And so I would hope that even if we did separate it out, that that uh, not tracking, but (laughs) that that information, that data would not be used really. It it couldn't be found. It couldn't be discovered outside of of this department for this data. Um,
10: We hope, yeah. (laughs) but,
6: But overall, I just I wanted to, again, thank you guys for The work, Um, and I I am very curious to see how this revision of stepping away from so much discretion will play out in hopefully the next couple of months
0: and going forward. Thank you other questions or comments about the deep dive on the.
7: Um, I just wanted. I'm so glad we're talking about this, and I'm so glad that Commissioner Chu has really um, suffered. No, I'm not glad she suffered. I'm <laughs> glad, though, that she is struggling with this, uh, because nothing could be more important than why we make these decisions. Uh, I, I was heartened. That as you drill down on, you know, some of the reasons that don't make sense that you're looking for alternatives, like safety of the child is not a reason to put him in jail. You know, so, uh, I really appreciate that you are trying to change policies. I was really taken with. The DRI is inefficient, unreliable, arbitrary, and not predictive. So that was sort of like. Oh, my God, <laughs> um, what do we do next? So, I, I do want to say this is another reason to really look at the closed juvenile hall working group um, uh, work and analysis because a lot of effort went into analyzing these uh, uh, th- these situations L- like um, looking at the whole issue of warrant. And I do want to put, I am putting that on the agenda, of the program committee coming up this month, the whole understanding. What is a warrant? How does this happen? Um, you know, what are the, uh, and I hope maybe, um. Uh, Selena, <laughs> um, can come to the meeting and help us understand the whole warrant situation since so many of the, um, detentions. Our warrants, although I see that's decreasing and happy to see that I am also one of the things I've learned in the closed juvenile hall working group is the difference between detention and custody. So I'm looking like, who says it's a mandatory detention (laughs) as opposed to custody, which need not necessarily be detention. So I don't know if that's a policy that is just non-negotiable and we have to do this or if we have discretion and can figure out a better way to do this but the whole idea that subjectivity is so it's it's like journalism i guess too where it's everywhere and it's so hard to pull out and you know, determine who really needs to be locked up. So I'm so glad you're doing this. I tried to follow you, couldn't follow ever everything. I really want to keep reviewing this. I'm gonna study all the data again and try to understand what you're doing and what you're proposing, but it as I gather, this is still a work in progress, right? You're not, you're not seeing this as like, oh, we got the solution. Now we got it down. We've learned that it's unreliable, arbitrary, not predictive and inefficient. Um, which, thank you very much. Um, so. I, like, Commissioner Jew, I'm really looking forward to sort of. Monitoring this and ongoing reporting about this and really pulling out all the threads and the ways that, um. We don't have to detain these kids. So, you and more work to
10: do and, you know, I think commissioner to your point, I mean, I, I totally appreciate that. Celine and Maria did all of this. It's so important and, you know, it, it is an ongoing work in progress. So what I just want to be clear about is, like, this interim step is what we're doing right now, because I feel like once you've learned something is arbitrary and inefficient and flawed, you shouldn't wait to try to improve it. So this is our interim streamlined decision making tool. So I want to really make sure people hear two things. One, that we're going to do this as an interim step and two, that we are, of course, open to the fact that this isn't the final answer. Um, so I feel that we have a responsibility to our kids. Right now to, like, start moving forward on this and then a responsibility collectively to figure out what the future holds in terms of kind of the best. Way to make these decisions going forward, but in the meantime, as we get this up and running, I think that. The data we see from it will help us know, right? Like. Whether this is a good path, whether we need to make more adjustments. So, um. I, am just really excited that we get to share this with everybody tonight and kind of set this interim path before
7: you. And just speaking of interim, because I remember 30 years ago when the youth making a change at Coleman, and I was the director of Coleman, were studying the risk assessment instrument and made up their own and came to the juvenile probation department and said, what you're doing now is terrible and terrible for kids. So it's. It's a, it's a work in progress and, um, you know, there's been a lot of resistance to this from the probation department. And um, honestly, I, when you said it's inefficient and all the things I was like, oh, my God. That it, it just to acknowledge that and start start working on it is so important. So.
10: Oh, and then I think that, um, and this is the last, I promise I'll stop talking about you know, this. Is, they were going long on this, but, you know, I also think it's important for all of us to understand and it is complicated and then be able to talk about it. You know, I'll give as an example, anecdotally, somebody said to me, I don't like that. You guys are going to take off the, like, mitigating factors, right? <laughs> like that might hurt clients and our ability to say. Well, we're taking off both the mitigating and the aggravating factors and in point of fact, they don't help. Right? So, let's take them out and really address ask ourselves at the end of the day. What is the most important things we need to decide about Like it's, it, is that kind of consistent education that we need to do across our justice partners too. So,
11: and the 1 thing I wanted to add is um, that through this long process, um, all of this data was presented to all of our supervising probation officers and they really helped inform the best ways to streamline the tool. Um, so, I just wanted to appreciate all of their assistance as well.
0: Are there any questions or comments about the DRA presentation from uh commissioner shorter commissioner Spingola. for now for me i guess i just had um as a maybe a closing
1: question um and maybe it's for all three of you um In terms of I was I was going back to the slide about the history of the DRI and something that struck me was the last bullet where you said the predictive validity of the tool, as it relates to reoffending and failure to appear, has not been evaluated. It just seems to me like once you go through all the data, you go through the history with any Casey and JDAI, and I remember many years ago I uh, participated in a multi-day like JDAI thing at the hall and. Um, and I thought it was pretty well done, and I'm just kind of confused as to how something that was perhaps conceived to be in a well-meaning manner could kind of go so off track in a way. Um, and I don't, I, I mean, i just, it seems, you know, just somewhat confusing to me that something could be um, become so subjective when the data is presented. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that.
11: It's all relative. So I think when this was started, this was revolutionary that you would ha- create some sort of standardized decision-making tool and that it wouldn't be completely driven by whoever was working that day. Um, and, and the JDAI initiative has been successful. I mean, we have seen significant reductions in the use of secure detention for juveniles. I think other jurisdictions have subsequently validated and refined their tools. And I've been like hounding Santa Clara and Alameda because I know that they've engaged in that. And I know other jurisdictions across the country have done that as well. And we didn't. And uh, one conversation that we had was like, oh, should we? Should we try to validate this? I think like Selena's analysis shows that there's a lot of problems with the tool that Aren't fixable. (laughs) Um, I think another thing is that to validate a tool statistically, you need a lot of numbers and we have very small numbers, which is. Good. Um, So, I think that at some point we can just make the decision that we don't need to try to predict uh, at the front door in that particular way um, into juvenile hall. And we can just kind of make the most streamlined policy decision possible to best serve young people. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that was my thought is perhaps there wasn't enough data. Um, to kind of make a good analysis that, you know, could help lead to this conclusion until recently when Selena and the team have you know, dug in on it. That was my 1st thought. But I was just like, I remember going back to that slide at the end when he had presented everything. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, how are we using something that hasn't been evaluated for these measures? It just seems kind of like square 1 on this, but I'm sorry to chief. I cut you off. No, I just was
10: gonna say, I think we often feel like something is better than nothing. And so sometimes we start with something, um, and then, and then to Maria's point, we have to be continually challenging ourselves and continually asking where we're letting our spidey sense make our decisions. Right. And, and so this tool is kind of a combination of great intention and some good information and some spidey sense and and we need to filter that out. But yeah, you know, when this started. It, I do think it reduced numbers of kids in the hall. Doesn't mean it's the best way to go forward.
1: And then another thought, and I, I guess this is still to, you know, Commissioner Brodkin's point about. You know, the close uh, hall working group and, and that whole report that's going to come out, but. I would love to, you know, just perhaps share the information that we're seeing in our jurisdiction with other jurisdictions, like you said, Santa Clara, and Mateo, other counties. Because it seems to me that perhaps if. You know, uh, we're uh, doing things that they haven't done or, or vice versa. There could be that information sharing amongst the counties and we could share what we've learned so that, you know, some of these practices could be implemented in those areas as well. And statewide when any other areas that are using the DRI. so that. You know, I, I don't know if what we're finding is, is obviously, I don't know if we're like the 1st to kind of dig and find gold on this issue if you will. And and now we can share that with the rest of the counties. But. Um, you know, if there's a way for us to to share our findings to um you know make it known that this is kind of what we're seeing here i think it'd be helpful since it seems like you know uh i think it said that other other jurisdictions had used it right so it's like
11: so they've used their kind of own version so each jurisdiction kind of crafted their own so while i very much appreciate your appreciation of our efforts i would say we san Francisco's behind the curve in this regard and most other large jurisdictions will have already taken a hard look at their data and gone through the trouble of trying to validate it and hopefully pare it down and reduce bias. I know that was Alameda's intention specifically was to reduce racial disparities, Um, but our our DRI is is San Francisco's alone. (laughs) Yeah, I just,
4: I wanna add to that, that that was the model where every jurisdiction worked to come up with their own risk tool Um, and then another thing that I want to add to that is that for the places that have validated it and studied it and seen what actually does predict. Reoffending and failure to appear this has led to a lot of different jurisdictions. Pairing it down because they realize that they have, like, all these questions that are inconsequential in predicting anything. Got
1: it. No, it's it's fascinating and I appreciate all the work that. Uh, you've done on the data and the analysis and just uh, then chief as well to to you for you know um you know being agile and um you know working to uh, change this midstream as we're also you know working to um, obviously implement a whole different structure for the juvenile system in San Francisco so um thank you all for the deep dive this was uh, like I said fascinating and I appreciate all the data and the presentation that was um, presented tonight.
9: Thank you, awesome team.
1: Well, Chief, I guess uh'll let you go ahead. I think you have a uh, few more items.
10: yeah, I do. i will we will try to be uh efficient and accurate in all the things that the d r i is not. Um, I need the little sharing thing back,
9: okay, great. so I know how to do this, let's see. How's that working? You see just one box? Do you guys see just
10: the slide? Okay, great. So I'm gonna just go through the rest of my report. Um, I will start quickly with workforce, and which includes both us and some non-JPD workforce in my report this time. I wanna start with staffing changes. I know this is a standing item um, per your request in my report now. I'm gonna go over our hires, separations, and one promotion. Um, so we had a few hires since we were last together. Uh, we hired a HR analyst, um, to specifically work on, um, our, fo- uh, our staff who are on leave, which is an important thing that we need to address here in the department. Um, we hired a custodian and a stationary engineer to be filling gaps that we've had in our staffing in the back. Uh, as things have reopened, it's become very hard for the city to hold on to positions like custodians and engineers as hotels have reopened and the private industry. Obviously, we need those positions full to be keeping the buildings online and clean. And then the last hire that we had in the last month was a new AB 12 social worker, uh, Kyle Wilkins. I'm super excited to have him come in. He comes from uh, Riverside County, actually, where he's worked with young people in a number of ways. And he's really excited and focused on this young adult population. So I'm very happy to have him here as you saw in our data report. Um, our average caseload for our AB 12 social workers is 36 right now. So they're very happy to have him join the team. Um, in terms of separations, um, longtime probation officer, Chris Griffin, retired on October 1st, after 29 years at juvenile probation, including at the ranch in the hall, and then in multiple units as a probation officer over the years. Um, so he just left us. Move on to greener pastures, greener culture pastures, because he is moving to Chicago. Um, and then I'm really uh, happy to share tonight our promotion, who I think is listening. Um, he's been listening for a long time tonight. Uh, which is that uh, Derek Hom has been officially promoted to be our senior supervising probation officer. Um, he's been in an acting capacity in that role since the spring. Was officially promoted into the role last week after going through an interview process, including uh, community representation on the interview panel. Uh, and so I appreciate that involvement. And I'm really, really excited to have Derek take on the role. So, congratulations, Derek. I think you're still listening. Derek has been at the department for over 25 years, working as a counselor, starting back in 1996 in the hall, then as a deputy probation officer starting in 99 and a senior. Uh, supervising probation officer since 2013 and he's literally supervised every unit and knows our work backwards and forwards. Um, I'm going to move on to our vaccine mandates. Um. So, the deadlines have kicked in for uh, proof of vaccine for our staff and any staff who um, wish to submit an exemption request have done. So, at this point, um, I will note that, um, the policy for the city is that staff who are on leave, um, were uh, not imposing the restriction until they're coming back from leave. So we have a handful of staff in that situation, but we have a small number of staff in the department who have asked for, um, exemptions to the, re- to the, um, vaccine requirement. Um, our HR team is spending a lot of time working with the city attorney's office to resolve whether we would grant or not grant exemptions. Um, and then if an exemption isn't granted and the employee still uh declines to get vaccinated the city's policy now is to move very quickly to a skelly hearing which in a sense means a fast track to a separation of employment for that person so this is a very pivotal moment for some sit staff across the city who are declining to get vaccines and are not having exemptions granted so we're very much in that process our hr folks are working really hard on that right now i also want to note that um more recently, the city has determined that some of our contractors also have a requirement to be vaccinated. So any contractors um, to the city who are working in close proximity with city employees for substantial amounts of their working hours also now have a requirement to be vaccinated by December 31st. So we're going to be going through that process right now of letting folks who work in this building know about that requirement. We just found out about it late last week. Again, folks have till December 31st. Um, I know there's some folks tonight listening, for example, from CJCJ, CJCJ CJ works in our building. This applies to the staff who work here. So we will be uh, communicating that information out. Of course, um, we're pulling it together right now to make sure we share with everybody in this building who comes from um, contracts. Contracted agencies, and then, of course, for anybody going into the halls, provide services that that vaccine requirement has already kicked in for them. Um, the health order already requires it for anybody going into the hall to perform work, uh, not for visitors to the hall. So families, for example, do not fall under the city's vaccine requirement, um, which leads me to on site COVID testing. So, in late July, as, you know, we had an exposure in the hall led us to really lock things down um, and it led the city health officer to impose the same requirement on us that already existed for the jail which is that people can only come into our hall with a clean COVID test, regardless of vaccination status. Um, So we went through a temporary period where our staff had to be going down for weekly testing at Laguna Honda. Really appreciate public health making that available to our staff. And I think I probably talked about that when we were last here together. Meanwhile, um, here, um, our juvenile hall director, Bobby Upal, was working feverishly to get juvenile probation um certified as a state certified on-site COVID testing site. I just use that word a lot. So that has come through and starting on October 4th, we rolled out the capacity to be doing COVID testing here, rapid testing for anybody who needs to go into juvenile hall. Um, so last week we rolled it out to attorneys, case managers, therapists, psychologists, anybody needing to go in to see kids one-on-one has st- started being able to do that on-site testing. This week, we are rolling it out to our CBO partners, so they can now start coming in again in person to do services with our kids in the hall. Um, They may also have the option to continue to do their services virtually, and some of our CBO partners have elected to remain virtual, but the um, opportunity is available to everyone. And then starting on the 23rd of October, we'll be bringing families in the same way. We've extended the um, window of visitation for in person visits, so that we're not cutting into our families' visit time while they wait for their test results. So we've uh, kicked up the visiting to start half an hour earlier. um, So that folks can come have their test wait for their results and then still have their full visiting window. So that will kick in for families on the 23rd. Um, the tests are actually self administered, but overseen by juvenile hall staff and I want to give a huge thank you to our counselor, Jamie Shaw, who really has been overseeing that process. It um, takes about 15 minutes for people to get a result uh, and people can sign up and can register for the system in advance and we encourage folks to do that because then it's much faster when they get here for their test. If they do test positive, um, they get notified, they can get notified by both text and email of that status. Um, And of course, they're, they don't get, they're not able to go into the hall. Um, but I just want to acknowledge that so far it's going well, and we're really grateful that we can do this here. Um, we also will, um, we've offered to our partners in this building, the court, public defender, district attorney that anyone with staff who may be worried about being in the building and potentially sick can go get a test here. So that we're keeping the front building as also um, as safe as possible. Um, so I wanted to note all of that and again, the thank you to Jamie Shaw and Bobby Upal. It's been a huge lift getting this going um, and a big advancement for us.
5: In terms of really
10: making that hall open again, so that our kids are not, um, uh, isolated, um, as much <laughs> to the best degree possible from people who love them and, um, our CBO partners who work with them all the time. Um, moving forward, I will go to our DJJ closure activities. So, um, folks have heard me say this a bunch of times, but. The law passed by the governor last year, Senate bills, 823 and 92, um, have, uh, require uh, each local jurisdiction, each county to develop our plan for what we're gonna do for young people who would have otherwise been eligible to be committed to the court by the court to DJJ. There can be no commitments after July 1st, that just this past July 1st, we have no young people at DJJ from San Francisco and now we will not. Um, so our local subcommittee is um, busy at work um, kind of doing the analysis required to create our local plan. So far, um, I want to really thank our subcommittee different folks on the committee have stepped up to be leads for different subject areas. They've gone out to talk to different stakeholders to get their input. They've looked at reports and analysis on these topics. They've convened kind of listening sessions to hear from folks. And so far, we've looked at the issues that are up on the screen, health, behavioral health, sex offender, treatment, workforce development for young people, education. Positive youth development programming and girls and gender expansive young people and the services and specific supports they need. Um, up next will be, um, Additional work and sessions focusing on housing on cultural responsivity on family engagement and then on the settings themselves. Right? What can a secure setting look like? What can out of home placements look like? What can community based support look like? All of this culminates in us then writing it up as a um, kind of almost like a grant application to the state. It has to be submitted to the state by January 1st, and our board of supervisors has to review it before then. So that process is very busy right now. Um, I want to thank Emily Fox for the fact that on top of her regular job here, she has the enormous responsibility of drafting that report. Um, And I want to also remind us all that at this point, our local subcommittee has by vote voted to use our existing juvenile hall as our local secure setting. So, should the court order any young person to a sick what's called a secure youth treatment facility under this new law. um, They would be housed for now, at least at the current juvenile hall. Um, And there is actually a case um, on calendar right now where we may see that happen. moving along to my next slides we have a couple slides on out of home placement i know we are running late tonight but we want to share some information i'm going to quickly kick it to maria to talk a little bit about really important things both our local um, activities to create our new uh, uh, resource families and then also um, big changes in federal law that kicked in on october 1st Um, and she can give you the headline of why you need to know about it and then a few details and we'll come back for a little more information. Go ahead, Mark.
11: Sure, so um, just quickly, Uh, We are this close to launching our foster care pilot with alternative family services. Um, The work plan and budget is almost complete and will be submitted into DCYF system. And then it has to get some approvals and lots of bureaucracy. But actually, that part's going to go pretty quickly. So hopefully, the next time we meet, we'll be able to say that we have launched our foster care pilot, which as a reminder, includes four emergency placement beds um, and three long term placement beds that will be dedicated to San Francisco go justice involved youth. Um, And then uh, perhaps actually their next meeting, we could give a little bit more detail on the program model. Um, And then moving along to the Family First Prevention Services Act, which is acronym is FFPSA, or some people like to call it FIPSA. this is federal foster care reform that happened in 2018 and went into effect in California and I guess across the nation on October 1st. There's two components. The first is kind of good news. It expands for the first time ever. It says that federal Title IV-E dollars can be used for services um, for youth in order to prevent foster care. So for youth who are um, have been determined to be at imminent risk of foster care. Um, so it creates a new funding stream for that group of youth, which is a pretty small proportion of JPD's caseload, but nonetheless, um, certainly services that we really want to make an investment in that keep young people with their families in their homes. Um, and JPD is working with the Department of Public Health and the Human Services Agency on how um, best to uh, access those funding streams um, in the most effective manner. So, then, Chief, if you'll go to the next slide. This is where things get more complicated. Um, the second major change is in regards to group homes, which we call um, short-term residential therapeutic programs in California, or STRTPs. Um, the federal reforms intention is to reduce the use of congregate care settings or um, group homes, and only to use those when they're necessary or most effective for youth. Um, and so it limits the times at which federal funding can be used for group homes. Uh, it has places new requirements that group homes have to have trauma-informed treatment and services, um, have to be able to provide 24 seven access to a licensed or registered nurse and have to provide discharge planning and family-based aftercare. Um, the biggest change for for JPD is in regard and for child welfare. So also this applies to both HSA and JPD is um, in order to get STRTP approval. Previously, that process was kind of between the court orders out of home placement into a group home, JPD is working on it. It's approved through a multidisciplinary team and a multi-agency services team, um, which is still a lot of approvals, but uh, it was pretty, is pretty streamlined. The federal reform now adds additional layers to the process in order for an STRTP placement to be approved. Most importantly, a what is called a qualified individual, which is kind of a silly name, but describes. Um, but ultimately in san francisco is going to be a licensed clinician who uh, will make an assessment of the youth's mental and behavioral health needs evaluate whether a family setting can address those needs and determine whether or not um, a sdrtp placement is the most effective and least restrictive option and that is required for our youth to get placed in an STRTP. Um, and then there's also a bunch of additional documentation and oversight um, that are added by the law. Um, again, to meet the federal government's goal to reduce the utilization of STRTPs, but it also does mean that we are now all, and California was very delayed in implementing this federal reform. So we didn't really do anything. We passed in 2018 and the state started planning really like in June this year. Um, So it's happening really, really quickly. It's a lot of changes coming at us all really quickly. San Francisco is actually ahead of the curve, particularly for our surrounding counties, Um, but it is a lot of changes to the way that group home placements happen and it's gonna be putting a squeeze on group homes at a moment when we also find that we have fewer um, STRTP beds in San Francisco County. That's as fast as I can describe FFBSA. <laughs> and,
10: and we can come back with more information, but we wanted to make sure you all knew about it because it did just take effect. It is really important. California was really behind that, the times on kind of getting it done um, in a way that folks could really prepare. And now it's a little bit of a fever pitch, right? As everyone's trying to kind of deal with it. Um and it it does really play into this larger conversation about kind of this move away from group homes and also that further highlights for us how important it is that we're starting this work of building up more of our resource families. Um, I'm gonna take that to go into the next update, which I want to talk about briefly because I really wanna bring this to all of your attention, which is about Catholic Charities. As folks know, um, as a reminder, Catholic Charities for a long time in San Francisco has operated both the Boys' Home and the Girls' Shelter. Both programs took young people, both um, from juvenile hall, both kind of pre-adjudication and also as long term placements Um, last spring. I think folks will remember that the girl shelter reached out to the city. Um, The city was funding the girl shelter about 300,000 to try to help with the fact that their reduced use of beds was making it unfeasible for them to continue to operate. Last spring, uh, Catholic charities after a lot of discussion did close their girls shelter um, because there were just so few girls coming through and it was financially unviable. At that time, the city agreed to shift that it's technically 308,000 dollars over to help them fill. Funding gaps in their boys home. and uh, their prediction at that time was if they had an average of five and a half boys at any given time in the boys' home, that with that 300 odd thousand from the city, they'd be able to function. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Catholic Charities and folks from JPD and folks from Department of Children, Youth, and Families sat down again. Um, Catholic Charities had reached out to tell us that with further continually reducing numbers of boys coming in, that it is now. Even more financially unviable that the money, the city provides is nowhere near enough at this time. They've asked the city. um, They've Indicated that um, the only way they can continue to operate the boys home is if the city is willing to foot the entire bill of operation, which is about 1.8Million dollars a year. Um, So, we had our 1st conversation about that 2 weeks ago, the usage of the of the boys home has been very, very low. So. I would say from June on at most at any given time, there's been two kids there, more often one in the last few weeks, um, until a few days ago, none for a number of weeks. And so obviously the um, Catholic Charities is not able to draw down the money from the, the kind of state and federal money that would offset the cost of operation. So I wanted to bring that to your attention and this is issue of high concern for um, a number of members of the commission and community members and our partners um, so in our meeting that we had a couple of weeks ago, and then since then, we've taken some steps that I want to share. Um, 1 thing we did was we did ask Catholic charities to give us some alternative budget scenarios. So, right now they operate the facility at all times with staffing levels to enable them to take 8 boys. I just don't think we will ever see getting close to that number again. Um, so we asked for some scenarios that may not change their bottom line very much, but how much is it to operate it for? You know, 3 boys or 4 boys or 5 boys, like, does it bring that overall price tag down just so we have the different information we've reached out to the judges. I personally reached out to our judges to ask for input Um, and in collaboration with Catholic charities. We discussed this, you know, are there programmatic um, enhancements that could be done or changes to the program that may make the court more likely to send more young people than they're sending right now. So our judges. Um, I had some individual conversations and then they're meeting together to kind of come back to us with some collective feedback about that. So waiting to hear what they say. Um, I also took the step of reaching out to Edgewood because they also run an STRTP in the city to ask whether with some enhanced, so ask whether if Catholic Charities does go ahead and close, would Edgewood be willing with some additional support and enhanced staffing to um, welcome in some more of our justice involved kids Doesn't seem like that is a um, viable alternative Um, and then we're in the process right now of identifying potential city money and seeing what might be available to address this issue. Um, I should note that 1 more thing that we did bring up with Catholic charities in the conversation is that if ultimately they did decide that they just don't want to stay in this business. Given this continual issue, um, we did talk about the possibility of whether they would use either one or both of their sites, including the empty site right now, the girls' home. For populations of kids that we know uh, that we have, for example, would they be have an appetite for turning one of them into a six bed resource family home? That is something allowed under the law now. Would they be interested in turning one of them into uh, a THP or THPP, right? The programs that serve our transition age youth and our young adults. Um, very tentative conversations about that. And I only throw that out to you to show kind of the range of the discussion I think our primary focus right now is whether we have the ability to identify um, funding for some short term stabilization and then time for collective conversations about the long term. But I wanted to bring it up. I wanted to make sure, you know, that we are actively working on this issue and um, that I know it's a concern to a of folks. Um, Finally, um, the last part of my presentation that I can take questions is um, kind of our uh, uh, monthly report on race equity efforts. So, internally, right now, we're doing our annual staff race equity survey. It's underway. We did our 1st 1 ever last year and now we're doing our 2nd 1. and then our external work as folks know around race equity is our work with 3rd sector 3rd sector partners. Um, So, uh, we are, I'm going to give an update on where we are with that process. And then we've, as folks know, or as a reminder, we've brought 3rd sector in to do a few things to really help us think about the way we do our work through a race equity lens. For our young youth and families um, to help us with what I think um, can be the implementation of some of the recommendations that came out of the Blue Ribbon Panel and will be forthcoming coming out of the Close Juvenile Hall Work Group, um, and then really to kind of crack the nut on some of the front end and ongoing collaboration that we know we want to improve, um, and that we've been talking about doing since the day I got here. Um, so uh, in our contract with third sector, there's um, a few different phases outlined. Phase one was third sector, spending time with probation staff, spending time with a number of our CBO partners to hear input on what this process should focus on and look like. That phase is completed. We've now moved toward phase two, um, which is to uh, stand up three work groups um, with equal representation on each from probation and a number of our CBO partners. To look at 3 specific topic areas, and these were really informed by that kind of stage 1 input. Intake, what we do, what do we look like at intake? How do we partner together that 1st intake with the young person? How do we develop case planning? And what does case management and supervision look like for kids? Um, and I've listed some of the kind of values that underpin this and the kinds of things we're looking to do, but at this point, we're just about to launch phase 2. Um, we reached out to the juvenile justice providers association to, for them to identify, um, 12 of the 15, um, nonprofit seats that will be part of the process. And I know that. um, they are considering that very seriously, um, and and, uh, making some important decisions about that. Um, and then, you know, my goal at this point is to do this piece. Um. Because we have invested that kind of phase 1 information gathering, and I'm very eager and excited and hopeful that we can do the 2nd phase and then to come back to you, the commission with the recommendations at the end of phase 2 and we can collectively talk about next steps and what could follow. Um, so I wanted to share that information. 3rd sector was originally, uh, on the agenda to give a presentation to you tonight. Um, it was moved to November. We wanted to make sure that commissioner rocket wouldn't miss it from Vermont. <laughs> um, And I know that there have been some concerns and issues raised about it, so I'm not going to kind of hide the ball in that, but I do want to express that from my vantage point. um, This is, we we were able to use funding that we otherwise would have lost to fund this contract. Um, I feel like we're poised to start some of this really hard, really important work. With our probation staff with our CBO partners, and I'm hopeful that we can start moving it forward and that you'll hear in November from 3rd sector and have an opportunity to ask them more questions about the process and how they do their work and things like that. So, I wanted to um, share that with you tonight and I can open up to uh, questions on any pieces of this report.
1: Thank you chief. Um- To go back to the workforce uh, slide and the mandate, are you concerned at all about. The individuals who I guess you said are going through uh, hearings and that. um, If they don't obviously comply with the vaccine mandate would. um, Be separated, I mean, is it a number of individuals that would. Put the department in a tough situation, or is it something that is manageable? I mean, what are the, what are your thoughts on that?
10: No, it's not. Um, and so, and, you know, and even in the last week, some staff who initially had, um, requested exemptions and expressed um, initially an unwillingness did in fact, go get vaccinated. So we have a very small number of folks working right now who this applies to. We also have some folks on leave and so, as they start to come back, then, right, we need to start doing that work with them. But in terms of our day to day staffing, um, it's very low number. And I have to give a lot of credit to our human resources staff who spent a lot of time working with people answering questions. Um, I think I mentioned it's the last uh, uh, meeting, but we also brought an amazing um, black physician Dr. Ayanna Bennett to come talk to our staff, be available to answer questions about concerns. People might have about vaccines really appreciated that. But no, it's, it's not a big number for us. I'm sure you're seeing in the press numbers about police forces and fire departments and things like that. And that's not the case. Fortunately for us at this point here.
1: That's great. Great to hear. I know that that had been a concern months, months ago, and, um, you know, uh, kudos to. DHR as well as, um, the, the staff or, I mean, I'm sure it was not an easy decision and they had the reservations and, um, but. Ultimately, making sure everyone is safe and that the youth are safe um, and to that effect. I, I mean, also just getting on site testing is great so that the families can. Um, have a better time an easier time um, coming in when they want to. And um, I just think. Uh, it, going from where we were to now tonight's update, updated, just uh, very. Heartening to hear the progress that's been made on that front um, as we continue to grapple with this and. I know you exactly read my mind, Chief, about the, the headlines I've read and what was concerned. You know, it seems like each day there's a new headline that talks about, um, you know, this issue. So I, I was hoping that that wasn't the case here, and I'm very, very glad to hear that it, our department's different. So,
9: yeah, me too.
1: Other questions or
0: comments about the remainder of the chief's report? Hey,
5: chief. I do. Um, what concerns you have with third sector? What kind of concerns folks have with third sectors? I actually looked third sectors up. Third sector has no history of working with young people or anything to do with young people. So, tell. Can you explain to us what third sector is and where they're from?
10: Sure, absolutely. And and I will also um, hopefully have them do more explaining right in November. So they're not. Content experts, right? So there's kind of 2 kinds of facilitators that sometimes. (laughs) Wait a minute.
7: This is going to be on the agenda. It's now really late. Uh, I has to have some time on the agenda, so I, I feel like I get put to the very end. You know, like the program committee. We're going to have a really robust discussion about this, and you start talking about it, I'm going to, I'm just going to get furious, and we'll, we'll be here till one. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate, uh, I'm commissioner. i leave at that. I'll leave
5: it at that because I'm, I'm, t- I'm tired. Yeah, I don't I'm want on to. on the
7: agenda this it. time. Yeah. And I, I, I'm very upset about this contract. If it were up to me, I would discontinue it. Um, I'll just put that out there. Um, but I want to have time to have a real discussion about it.
5: Well, I'll pull that question back. I, I, we can wait. I can wait till the 18th. I'm. never. Yes. Yes, we can do that. It is getting kind of late, and I know it is. It's going to get a little deep.
0: Okay. Other questions, comments about the slides and the presentation that we heard?
7: I'm endlessly upset about the disconnect between we have beds, and we have kids, and we have kids who need beds, and we have beds that are, you know, about to close down. And and this has been going on for years. (laughs) The disconnect between our ability to have those beds meet the needs of the kids that we have. I am so glad you're working on it. The maximum flexibility possible, you know, so that we don't have this awful situation where we have almost no beds left in San Francisco in any kind of group care um, and yet we have kids a whole range of kids that uh, young adults uh who 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 need who need a place to sleep and need a program to be in and um so it's been enormous frustration to me that it seems like it's no one's responsibility to make sure that happens and i'm glad you're taking the responsibility because it would be a real tragedy if we you know lose all those beds.
9: thank you
0: Further questions or comments about the chief's report? All right, chief. All right. Thank you. Thank you for thank you as
1: well as to Maria and to Selena um, and everyone up at the hall for um, just really a very robust discussion tonight, um, especially on the DRI. And also, thank you to Commissioner Chu for really um passionately embracing this subject and, and really um driving um the subject to the forefront of um the debate that we've been having here and I appreciate um the effort you've put into this, Commissioner Chu. And um, you know, I really I thought it was a really great uh Chiefs report tonight. So thank you to all the the staff. I know that you put a lot of hard work into these Reports and, um, and I also, I, I say it at every meeting, but I also just appreciate the structure and just really how you've laid it all out so that we know exactly the slides that we should be seeing and. And then also just giving us the meat of the full presentation to go through if we want to dive in on other issues. So, thank you so much.
10: Thank you. And I will note that I didn't it's on the agenda and I didn't speak to the closed juvenile health worker. I didn't know if commissioner Brown wanted to speak to that part or not. Um. The only thing I would say is that um, my understanding is that um, we will be seeing a draft of their report by the end of this week and meetings will start again next Wednesday to look at it. With the intent being that the report goes to the board of soups by November 15th. So that's the entirety of my report on it tonight. I, I'll kick it over to Commissioner no, I, I for anything would,
7: else. I just would add, I'm glad we're going to give you a break in December. Uh and, and I think the more time we can spend in December actually on that, the the greater benefit'll be to the commission and to the public that is that is
0: interested in this. It's eleven forty-four on the West, on the east
7: coast. <laughs> um
1: commissioner I know you had wanted to um, provide a programs committee update uh, so I'll hand it over to you uh, so you can talk about the work you've been done
7: look I am really not trying to punish my fellow commissioners I I'm practically dead here myself so I I I, I don't know how to do this because I had said I really wanted to, so to go through what the program committee has done um, because I want you to you know, uh understand how I approach the program committee and how um our uh Commissioner uh, uh Spangola and Toye, Moses, <laughs> um how, how we've handled the program committee because I want um so basically uh in since it, it, we've had five meetings between April and September. We have talked about four major topics. We've talked about the relationship of JPD and CBOs. We've talked about youth 18 and over, which comprise more than half of the young people in our system, which is something I think very few people outside this group understand and appreciate. We had the most well attended meeting that we've ever had on Log Cabin Ranch. There's a huge interest in what happens there. And we've talked about placement options and we've had two special reports, one on the community developers, one on CJCJ. CJ. So my <laughs> you know basically I I have structured the meeting to diverse Stakeholders on all of these topics to do some collective problem solving and I think that it has worked pretty well as a structure and 1 of the reasons it's worked um, well is because. The probation department through the chief and other staff people in the department have really been a partner in using this, the program committee as a forum to talk about um, these issues that are so important. And um, many of which are not being uh, discussed in, in, in other uh, venues. So I was going to review <laughs> with you <laughs> the conclusions and recommendations of each of those, um. Each of those issues, and I don't know quite now how to do this. Um, president, <laughs> uh, I, cause, like I said, it's 1146 here and I don't know what, what level of tolerance you have for this. I, I could probably do it in 10 minutes if I had to. Um, I can continue. um but I let me just try to go through it as quickly as possible so the whole relationship to cbos we've talked about at i think three of our meetings it's been a huge uh, issue and um you know many recommendations were made to the department Particularly how we can develop relationships between CBOs and the juvenile probation department from day 1 and that that would do more to address the concerns that we have about the DRI than probably any other single thing that we could do. Um, And. Uh, I have the 10 recommendations that were made, but basically the department took the lead and started convening meetings about improving communication between CBOs and uh, probation. You heard a report on it at the last meeting. I'm pleased that it's gotten started. I think everybody feels like, oh my God, it's such a relief. I'm so glad we're talking about this. And this is so frustrating. We have so much more. We've really just dealt with the low-hanging fruit, which is the fact that we're going to start talking to each other and have rules for talking to each other. So all the issues around who has power, who makes decisions, who's involved in the uh, young person's case, at what point in time, this is all to be continued. Um, We did have two CBOs present, YCD presented. And I hope that that led (laughs) to more referrals from probation to YCD, and we had a report our last meeting of the study that was done with probation um, with 70, 76 clients of CJCJ CJ, um, paired with 76 clients of the juvenile probation department and comparing outcomes and you know you can criticize Size the study, but basically the conclusion was that um the outcomes at c j c j in terms of rearrests were were twice as good as the juvenile probation department, and whatever flaws you want to um put in that study um I think it behooves the juvenile probation department to look really carefully at how why these discrepancies exist. Um, I also, as part of understanding the CBO situation, um, we've had two reports from DCYF, and I won't go into them except to say my feeling is that the probation department doesn't understand the scope of what DCYF does and the amount of data it has, and the fact that they track every kid in the system, every kid that's in a juvenile justice alternative. And and we need to use that right at the outset so that we can, um, you know, get kids connected much, much sooner. And I think there is this feeling uh, in the probation department, oh, these CBOs aren't accountable and who, there is more damn accountability for CBOs in the, that are funded through GCYF at least. And I think the health department than, uh, than, you know, any other system. Uh, that that I know of, and so that was reflected in the data that we've gotten in the 2 reports. Um, the 2nd report was on, um did they did focus groups with CBOs about referrals and they they looked at 65 cases um, in the focus groups and only 10 of the 65 cases of kids in the juvenile justice system were referred by J, the uh J, the probation department others were referred by CBOs the schools the DA the public defender um, uh, and the police department, so that just you know speaks about some of the issues that people are struggling with about log cabin ranch. We had 65 people at that meeting 15 testified from all parts of the city. There is tremendous interest in what we're going to do about log cabin ranch. There was enormous consensus about it is a resource for the city. You know, it is an outdoor space. It is a place for. Healing. It can be a one sort of young people being trained to to be a a transition to jobs. Um, And uh, people who testified did not want to see it locked, wanted to see it run by a community organization. And um, that is something we're going to have to struggle with. Like, what happens to the ranch? Um, And what does the uh, commission want to do about it? And I think that's an issue we kind of left up in the air. I sent you all a summary. Of the, of uh, the test of the testimony, if you have a chance to look at it, I sent it a couple months ago. I think you'll find it really interesting. The conservation Corps was there and they are willing to actually renovate the ranch and use their money to do that. Um, and they proposed a program, um, about training and environmental and putting out fires, et cetera, et cetera. After the hearing when they heard what people wanted to see in the ranch. Um, They called me and said, you know, they're much more open about doing something that is very consistent with what uh, the, the testimony reflected. So what's next with that is a really important issue in terms of the placement options. We did start the discussion about the family resource zones. We had a youth law center presentation say, hey, guys, These kids that you are in your care, they're actually in foster care. And they should be treated like children in foster care. And we talked about the least restrictive environment and really got the discussion going about family about families, got alternative family service into it, and God bless you, Katie Miller, for just following up on that and we now have a contract with Alternative Family Service to find families at our last meeting. The director of that program was at our meeting and she is fabulous and people were so inspired by her and what they are the families that they recruit you know they're there for them 24 hours they offer respite they pay them they give them emotional support not uh non-stop uh I was blown away and I'm so pleased and I'm so optimistic that we're going to get these seven homes and that's going to make a huge difference. And then the last thing we talked about were youth 18 and over and we're going to talk about this at the next meeting again. Um, That is over half of our kids and um, we drilled down on they need for homes, which is why I'm so frustrated when we have these group homes. I mean, you know and young people who need congregate care who need you know supervised independent living who needs licensed uh, transitional um homes uh so you know and here's um and according so uh, now I'm trying to remember Gabe's last name. Gabe Cavillo yeah, who uh, um took took the initiative to convene meetings with Larkin Street, with the navigation center, with the people we brought into the first meeting we had about this. They have said they think about at any given time we need 15 to 20 homes for our young people. And um so my My concern is that it's nobody's responsibility to find these homes and the adult probation department actually has its own homes for transitional age, young adults. We don't. Um, And maybe we shouldn't, but the um, Department of. Homelessness, they don't consider our kids homeless because they're in foster care and you can't be in foster care and be homeless if you're an AB12 kid. So I am learning a huge amount about about all of this. And uh, to me, the bottom line is it's got to become somebody's responsibility to find homes for these most vulnerable young adults. So it's a work in progress. The committee will continue to look at it. You know, I think the way we've operated has been effective um, so far. I haven't come back to you. I mean, my my vision initially was we'll we'll have a hearing. We'll come to conclusions and we'll come back and we'll recommend a policy to the um, to the commission, which is why I want to talk about at our retreat. You know, how we operate as a commission when we make policies, what does it mean to be an oversight commission? but i have to say just providing a problem solving bringing people together monitoring um what happens has been an effective mo and i would like to encourage my fellow commissioners to let us know what you want to talk about um commissioner moses wanted to talk about uh Um, Bayview, um, commissioner Spangola wanted to talk about log cabin ranch. So we've had people come to us and say, you know, would you put things on the agenda? So know that we're sort of doing this. Um, And if you want to. You know, if there's something you want to put on the agenda, um, somebody can, uh, I was approached about talking about the warrants, which is so connected to what we've been talking about today. So we will drill down a bit on this whole issue related to warrants at our next meeting as well. Um, let me know. That's it. <laughs> I'm done <laughs>
0: Thanks, commissioner. It's a full
1: report.
7: (laughs) It's now 1157 on the East Coast.
1: (laughs) I don't know how you're standing. (laughs) Or sitting, for that matter.
7: I'm a a public nuisance here. I'm in a public space. I'm in the living room of a bed and breakfast, screaming my lungs out. And every time Maria opens her mouth, the volume. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. It's been a great meeting. Thank you. I'm so glad I could find a way to get connected.
1: Well, I appreciate the work of the program's committee and yourself and Commissioner Spingola and um, is it Commissioner Chu as well? In the no, is it just uh, is it no? It's Commissioner Moses,
7: is it? Right.
1: Commissioner Moses, as well as uh, Commissioner Spingola and yourself, um, for all the efforts that. You put um, towards advancing a lot of the different programs and policies and just continuing to work change through um, the process and uh, at the department. So I, uh. I appreciate uh, everything that you guys are doing and uh, look forward to hearing more. Um, and at that, I will now open it up for. Public comment on item number 7, I believe we received. A public comment that was written, and perhaps um, before we get into the opening of the line, um, our secretary could read that public comment.
2: Absolutely, that's from Molly Brown. She said um, she wanted to be present but had to leave a little bit early. She said, I'd like to bring to the attention of the commissioners that 62 percent of the active caseload is 18 and over in age, more than half, 60 percent of that number, are non minor dependents who are no longer on probation. I believe that reporting these two groups together is skewing the number of youth on formal probation and leaving out very important information on a large number of youth for whom we know very little. I am concerned that we do not have an adequate picture on, of how these youth are doing, the services they require, and whether or not they are housed. While they are under JPD's purview, it is therefore up to the commission to understand their needs further I encourage the commissioners to consider requesting a separate report. In parent, my apologies to the marvelous Maria McKee and parent, focusing on these youth, especially since their successful transition to adulthood has a direct impact on whether or not they may experience future justice involvement. Thank you, Molly Brown.
0: Thank you. Are there any other uh, written or um, voicemail? Uh,
1: Public comment messages we've received, uh,
0: I think so. Um, Pauline. I think I sent it to you in the chat.
2: Okay, um, let's see here at 806, 806, Dan. McAulair, he says, what is the point in validating an instrument that the agency will not use effectively? A non validated instrument can work if there is a willingness to change established practice, is a willingness to change established practice. And that is the end of his
0: input. Is there, and I guess, uh, is there any other written remarks or public comment? I think there are no one, emails. Sorry, Pauline, I think there's one at eight o'clock. Okay, let me check my email. Oh, I'm in the in the chat. Okay, I see it. I'm sorry. It was before the one
2: I the last one I just read from Dan McElare. Sometimes when you copy these into the chat, it doesn't pick them all up. So um, that's what happened with me with Molly Brown. So I had to go back and make sure I had it all. But this is from Dan McAulay at 8 PM. And he says, risk assessments instruments were developed to limit the overuse of detention. San Francisco has been trying to implement an effective instrument since 1988. An effective instrument should have no more than a 15% override. San Francisco has an override rate over 40% the problem may not be. The instrument, but the failure to change established practices and routines, mandatory detentions are often policy choices established in
0: certain jurisdictions. That the end of his input. Are there any other written uh, or voice message, public comment messages. No mind if there's any um,
1: attendees to press star three to raise your hand if you'd like to speak at this time.
5: Nope, there's no one in the queue for public comment.
0: Thank you, and
1: no other further uh, messages uh, written. No or, emails or emails. No, no
0: emails or voicemails.
1: Thank you. So will go ahead and. Close item 7 and move to future agenda items uh, item 8. I believe we had a uh, closed juvenile hall working group uh, presentation. I believe it was for December. Is that right? We had agreed.
0: That's right. Yes. Yeah.
1: And then next month we will be um, just as a reminder, we'll be hearing the items that were supposed to be heard tonight about 3rd sector. Um, so we'll have a presentation, I believe from 3rd sector and discuss, um. The, uh, the, um, contract with the department, um, and the work that they're doing and. Are there any other future agenda items? Aside from the ones that we've been discussing that we'd like to add to the agenda for future meetings.
10: President Ariano, can I just make 1 clarifying point? So, when for the presentation of the closed juvenile hall report, I'm my assumption is it's not probation doing the presentation. Um, There are, uh, appendices that will be part of it that are analysis that come from us, but I'm envisioning and oh, good. I see commissioner rocking nodding that we're not the ones presenting the bulk of the report. Thanks, you're off the hook.
9: Um and then just a reminder that for November also on the agenda is a deep dive about girls.
0: That's on the November agenda.
10: Yes, that will be
9: that will be our deep
10: dive, Commissioner Shorter, in November.
9: Great. November, okay. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Any other future agenda items? Are there any announcements? I'll move to public comment. Public comment for
1: item number eight future agenda items or announcements. Is there any
0: public comment at this time?
5: Nope. There's no no one in the queue.
1: Thank you. Closing item eight. uh, We're now moving to item nine. Adjournment. We are adjourned. The time is nine o five p.m. Thank you very much, everyone.
0: Thank Thank you. you. All right, commissioners.
6: Good night, everyone.
0: Good night.
8: Bye. Travel safely, Margaret. (laughs) Thank you. Get some sleep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bye, bye.